Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yes, a very good morning and welcome into SENZ on this Monday. Highlights there of day one of the Australian Tennis Open. And the only Australian going through on day one was Chris O'Connell, a five-set match against Christian Garan. Is it the biggest sporting event on the Australian calendar? They do have the Formula One Grand Prix, the AFL Grand Final, the NRL Grand Final. We will talk the Australian Open shortly with Brett Phillips from SEN in Australia. Telephone number throughout the day is 0800 150 811. You can text us here on the Temper Bed Post text machine, double eight double three. We will head to the UK, catch up with Andy Buckley, BBC football commentator, have a look at the English Premier League through the first two weeks of the new year. Earlier today, Tottenham Hotspur, Manchester United playing out a one-all draw, a two-all draw in fact, and then earlier today, Aston Villa-Everton playing out a nil-all draw. Liverpool still top of the table by two points. Coming up after 11 o'clock, we will again reflect on yesterday's performance from the Black Caps, beating Pakistan in the second T20 to take a 2-0 series lead in that. Game three live here on Wednesday afternoon. Scott Rice will join us on the programme. The Manu World Championships not too far away from getting underway around the country. This, of course, is the old traditional bomb off the wharf, bomb off the bridge. Why not have a World Championship for something that is quintessentially very New Zealand? We will do something very different after midday. Stu Kerr will join us on the programme, a former runner who had a bad surfing accident, who's now taken up open water swimming, training for an event in Perth called the Rocknest Island Swim, 20 kilometres of open water. Stu was a promising middle distance runner in this country, just little injuries and niggles prevented him from maybe truly fulfilling his talent in athletics. But it's just a nice story, it's just a nice story of human endeavour. Uh, of course, plenty of opportunity to take your talk. Uh, take talk back on 0800 150 Right, let's head across the ditch. Brett Phillips is the man who was calling the Australian Open for SEN. He joins us on the programme. Morning to you, Brett. Welcome. Yeah, morning. Uh, I keep thinking it's Tuesday, to be totally honest. But yes, it is Monday. It's, uh, the Sunday start is... Um, well, look, I, I'm a fan. 87,000 people came through the gates uh, yesterday, so it, it justifies, you know, moving to a Sunday. More people can come on the weekend. I mean, certainly the narrative going around the AO yesterday was that they'd love to make this a full, you know, three-week event and maybe start the um, tournament on a Saturday. So all that in the future. Uh, but, yeah, I think the Sunday starts. Yeah, certainly provided us with uh, some entertainment, uh, a bit of drama. Uh, the Aussies were involved in a few five-set matches. A little scare for, not really a scare, but he was pushed. Uh, Novak Djokovic against um, a potential rising star of the future. So, yeah, it had a bit of everything, heaving crowds and a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, you look at the Australian sporting landscape. You've got the AFL Grand Final and AFL throughout the year. You've got the NRL Grand Final. You guys have the Melbourne Grand Prix. Is this the biggest sporting event on the Australian calendar? 
I think so, yeah. The duration, you know, two weeks, uh, the real estate that it owns, you know, pretty much from the heart of Melbourne uh, for a good, you know, kilometre or two. And, you know, in, in Craig Tiley's words, the tournament director and the CEO of uh, Tennis Australia, he'd love to make this the biggest sporting event in the world. He's never been short of ambition, Craig, very innovative, and he feels like they're only, you know, the t- at the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. So... Yeah, we'll see. Um, you know what the future does uh, look like in terms of the Australian Open. It's just such a, you know, I'm a bit blessed here. You know, living in Melbourne, we've got an incredible sporting precinct that's so close to the the heart of the city, which you know doesn't exist really in any other city or most cities around the world. So, yeah, I think um, you know the government has spent what over three hundred million dollars to you know bring Melbourne Park up to the next level. You know, three. Uh, courts with a closed roof and just the facilities in general. I mean, you know, you look back to the the days when it uh, came to Melbourne Park, it's just, um, yeah, evolved enormously. Mm, A lot of people won't remember the days the Australian Open actually used to be played on grass, didn't it? It did. I was just down the road from where I'm speaking to you at uh, Kooyong, and every time I walk into Kooyong, I was a little too young at the time, but I walk in there and I think, uh, how on earth was a Grand Slam uh, played here? It's uh, quite extraordinary, but it, it's still the spiritual home of Australian tennis. A lot of great history with the Kuyong Classic last week, and yeah, it's obviously a place that um, you know people remember fondly. But we, you know, clearly the, the tournament had outgrown that facility, and yeah, it's, it's just incredible uh, how, how much real estate they've got now. And that's the great part. You had eighty-seven thousand people on site yesterday, but the site is so well spread out that you know you don't really feel like you're on top of each other. Chris O'Connell, thrilling five-set match against um, Christian Gutton, the only Australian to go through on day one. Just from a New Zealand point of view, who carries the flag now for Australian tennis on both the men's and women's side? What are the expectations around the Australian players for this tournament? Yeah, well, certainly our hopes are with Alex Dimonor, you know, having risen to the top 10 the last two weeks. He plays Milos Raonic tonight on centre court. And, you know, Raonic is obviously coming from a layoff. He's had a lot of injuries, the former world number three the last few years. So he's a little short of a gallop, but he's dangerous because he's big and he serves so well. Uh, so the Demon will have to make some inroads. He's got a tricky draw, but, you know, for the first time, I think he believes that he can really beat all these guys. He's, you know, risen incrementally. It's been a great sort of journey to follow. He's a terrific young guy. I mean, he's, you know, cut from the same cloth as Leighton Hewitt. Uh, every point is life and death for Alex, and he's got a great attitude, good team around him. You know, Leighton's a, a mentor and a huge influence in the background. And, look, we actually believe that, you know, have started to believe that he can actually maybe win a slam. Uh, we didn't probably think that 12 months, two years ago. And, it, it, you know, the, the, the calibre of players around him is is so good that, you know, it comes down to matchups and a bit of like a point here or there. But he's our main hope, certainly, on the men's side. We've got, you know, nine players inside the top 100 Australia. A lot of them, you know, O'Connell got through yesterday, but, you know, a couple of goes down in a tough five-setter, Sweeney in a tough five-setter. So they're all really competitive. That's the DNA of Australian tennis players. But... Yeah, Demonor sort of set himself apart from those guys. And, yeah, the women, it's a little thin uh, right now. And that's you know, going to be the case for a little while. We've got a couple of promising 18-year-olds. One girl, Taylor Preston, just keep an eye on her. She's going to keep skyrocketing up the rankings. She's at 200. 18 in the world, she plays Alina Svitolina uh, today. who's made a great comeback as a mum. Uh, but she's one that we're hoping for. She's got the glint in the eye, I can tell you, of an Ash Barty. So, uh, yeah, we'll see where the progress goes. 
Okay, so in terms of the crowd favourite, who outside of the Australians seems to be the brand athlete, seems to be the athlete, uh, the, the player that everybody wants to get up and watch, everybody wants to get alongside. Is it Novak Djokovic or is he still sort of loved by some and hated by others? Yeah, it was interesting to, to observe centre court last night. So, you know, he played this uh, young Croatian, won the French Open boys singles last year, Dino Primzic. He's a uh, solid boy. He's got the Alcaraz-type legs, Holgaruna-type, uh, that lower core, so strong. And, you know, these young guys are so ready. They're, they're not sort of biding time or developing. They they believe they can win. They're not playing, you know, the, the resume on the other side of the net. And, I mean, Novak sort of likes those matches in the early part of the tournament, just to work him in. You always feel like sometimes he's, he's orchestrating it himself, but we'll never know that. Um, but, look, Djokovic, yeah, I think, you know, it, it seems such a long time ago, the whole deportation and COVID and everything else, that we've almost forgotten about. He's a 10-time champion. They may very well build a statue of him at Melbourne Park. So there is the respect. But we're loving this next crew. That's where... You know, the practice courts when you've got Carlos Elcaraz and Holger Runa and Ben Shelton, Yannick Sinner, who had a you know, nice first up win yesterday. These guys are drawing uh, the spectators. They're the next generation, and uh, it's, it's pretty exciting, to be yeah, honest. But we, the, the we, tennis they're playing. We, we keep talking about the next generation, but we still really haven't seen the next generation come through. We've been talking about the next generation for a long time. Alcaraz, yeah, well, okay, he's won himself a US Open, yeah. and he's done well, but it's still Wimbledon, Novak yep. Djokovic, isn't it? Yeah, no doubt. The best of five, yeah, it's still Djokovic. That's the ultimate test, and particularly at Melbourne Park, because he owns this court. It's his home away from home. So, yeah, Alcaraz has won a couple of majors. I mean, Sinner, you feel like, is almost ready to break through uh, this year, but Novak is still so driven. So whilst he's in really good physical shape, which he is, and he wants to get some really, you know, significant separation, I think, uh, ahead of Nadal to be arguably, you know, without doubt, the greatest of all time, um, and I think he want, he's enjoying, you know, these keeping these young bucks at bay. So whilst he's still driven to the point he is, and there's there's no signs of the body breaking down, yeah, these guys um, have got their work cut out. But um, they're playing a high level of tennis. They want to take Djokovic on. So it's a beautiful thing, to be honest, when these two things collide. And, you know, hopefully Novak plays a couple more years while these guys build even further. So, yeah, it's great for the men's game, but... Yeah, Elgaraz has been the standout, but gee, I feel my, I feel like um, Sinner now is just about ready, and it's going to need a bit of luck. Okay, so if you were to look through the crystal ball five years from now, we've seen the great rivalries, haven't we? We've seen Federer, um, Nadal, as we talk about Djokovic. You go back to the days of Sampras and Agassi. Five years from now, who do you think will be the say two or three great rivals? Where, where's that next rivalry coming from? Yeah, I mean, those names that I've mentioned, I think already, uh, you know, like Elkaraz and Runa, who played juniors together, they played doubles in juniors together, and, you know, Elkaraz is just ahead of Holger, but these two will develop a terrific rivalry, Elkaraz and Sinner, I mean, they've already played an epic, you know, five-setter at the US Open when Carlos won it in 22, so those two are going to build, Sinner and Runa will develop a rivalry as well, so... And then, you know, Shelton's the brash American uh, coming through, and there's a few more names. But, yeah, no doubt. I mean, these guys are going to be sustainable. They aren't flesh in the pans. They're going to have great careers, and we're, we're pretty blessed. OK, look, I want to talk about um, the activity on the outside courts at Wimbledon at Strawberries and Cream. What is the old tucker at the Australian Open? What, what, what's, the, what's the marquee dish available for the pundits? 
Well, that's a good question because, uh, you know, I'm in such the bubble. I mean, you broadcasters, you broadcasters, you know, you, 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 you don't live in a world of reality. You get well looked after. You've got the sort of the first-class dining. But for the average punter, what is it, a pie? Is it a What's the old tucker they're offering? Well, I think it's got a little more upmarket these days. If you go to the MCG next door, you can still get a 4 and 20 pie and a hot dog. Uh, I don't see much of that stuff at the tennis, I've got to say. It's a little more, they get, you know, some of the leading restaurants in Melbourne and, uh, you know, it's a bit more, a uh, bit more funky. And but to be honest, um, I don't get out there that much. <laughs> I'm in the <laughs> cocoon where I get beautiful, uh, you know, vegetables and uh, some nice meat and you know, nice sustainable food to get us through the uh, the 15 hour days. I've got to tell you. So I will make a point though, just to wander out to the eateries and uh, see for myself what they're eating. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, uh, weather-wise, temperature-wise, are there any rules and regulations now in place regarding extreme heat and, I, I, I guess, you know, taking greater care of um, the players' health? Yeah, it's been, been um, in place for a little while, um, and they measure that. It's, it's, uh, I've forgotten the terminology now, the, uh, the wet bulb, I think they call it. Um, so, but looking at the forecast, to be honest, I don't think we're going to get that extreme sort of situation but um yeah obviously if it gets i think you know it gets to about mid 30s but it can depend on you know what the court they measure the court temperature and those hard courts get you know pretty warm underfoot and um there's a few other little factors you know uh, meteorological factors that go into all of that that you know will say whether they take the players off court but yeah it's been a while since uh I was trying to think, you know, I mean, all those years ago, we had a 46-degree day in Melbourne, which was so extreme. Um, but I think, you know, generally we've had a pretty mild uh, summer uh, here in Australia, particularly in Melbourne, which, as you know, uh, can change from uh, one hour to the next. And what about restrictions in terms of the length of play and the time of day that a game mm. can go? Are we still having games at 2am in the morning? No, well, that's a big thing now that uh, with obviously the Australian Open uh, starting on the Sunday, you're spreading the first round across uh, three days, which reduces the matches. And they've also uh, reduced the matches on Rod Laver Arena, uh, Margaret Court Arena, the two main courts. So I only had two day session matches, which basically means, and the US Open uh, do this, which basically means that the night session will always start on time. That was often the issue. They were playing three matches on RLA and uh, Margaret Court, and sometimes the night session, you know, with two matches, wouldn't be starting to late 39 o'clock, which puts you right behind the eight ball. So they've alleviated that. But, I mean, they can't guarantee. I mean, tennis, um, there's no clock, as we know. There's no uh, final buzzer. It's when the match ends. And, you know, like, for example, last night, Djokovic plays four hours. We didn't expect that against a qualifier in the first round. Uh, Arena Sabalenka came out and won pretty comfortably. So I think we're out of there after midnight at some point. But, yeah, we'll uh, we'll have to wait and see whether we get you know, um, a day where it just uh, drags on. And that's the unknown, really, of tennis. But I think on the tour this year, they're going to be trialling the ATP and the WTA. If, um, you know, a match hasn't started by, I think, 11pm, they'll, uh, you know, postpone it to the next day. So, yeah, I think they're, they're trying to look at some things to, you know, appease the players and, and certainly the spectators. OK, just finally, Brett, so what are the marquee matches people are looking forward to on day two of the Australian Open today? Yeah, there's a bit to like, uh, noted about that. Some you know, terrific uh, matchups uh, right across uh, the men's and the women's. I mean, Coco Goff will be on centre court. You know, she's definitely up there in the top four now. It was the top three winning the US Open. It's, it's put her on the map. Uh, Stefano Sitsipas will be an interesting watch. He's got um, Ciso Bergs of Belgium, but he's back 
isn't 100%, but the night session, uh, Demon or Roundish, to be followed by the return of Naomi Osaka, which is going to be fascinating. We had a little glimpse of her in Brisbane. She was striking the ball pretty well, and her return to Grand Slam tennis tonight up against Caroline Garcia, the former world number four. So it's a tough, uh, certainly first-up match, but looking forward to seeing you know, Naomi back uh, at a place where she's won a couple of majors. So, yeah, certainly uh, Rod Laver in the night session tonight is going to be pretty exciting. And Felix Auger-Aliassime, he's trying to find some form, the Canadian. He's got Dominic Team, the former world number three. I mean, that would be fourth round, uh, going back a couple of years ago, but a, a first round at the AO. Well, Brett Phillips, have a great call. Lovely to catch up. And thank you for your time this morning here on SENZ. No doubt. Pleasure. Thank you. There you go, Brett Phillips. All things the Australian Open Day 2 from Rod Laver Arena. Certainly the biggest sporting event in Australia, one of the biggest sporting events in the world. Always great weather, great hospitality. And I've got to say, I've just sort of returned from Australia myself, just up on the Sunshine Coast. And okay, I'm not going to talk tennis here, but my kids are into their surf life-saving and I like to do my swimming. And just the noticeable difference that you see between here and New Zealand, and it's a population thing, to be fair, um, economies of scale, I guess, but the facilities that Australia have that we just simply don't have. You go to the surf clubs, surf life-saving clubs in Australia, and they're just three levels, restaurants, incredibly well-resourced. They're every two or three kilometres along the coast. Outdoor 50-metre swimming pools everywhere, 10 lanes. You get your own lane when you jump in. Uh, just remarkable, remarkable facilities. And then you just look at Rod Laver Arena, you look at the fact that three of the main courts there now have roofs. Uh, they can you know, cover the courts if need be. Um, $300 million investment into Rod Laver Arena by the Victorian government. And, um, you know, and they reap the benefits of it. They do genuinely see a return on that investment. Um, but I hate to say it from a... Sporting point of view, we do live very much in a, a backwater, don't we? Um, I'm not sure what the solution is, but I can sort of understand why a lot of New Zealanders end up moving to Australia. Of course, the other big difference being the climate as well. It is 22 minutes after 10. Uh, if you do want to phone the program at any point, we're happy to put you to air. 0800 150811. You can text us here on the Temper Bedpost text machine, double eight double three. We will take a break. When we come back, we'll talk some English Premier League football. That must be my cue. I was too busy eating. I wasn't keeping an eye on what was happening on the computer. Sam Hewitt came in and rudely interrupted me. And then I'm swinging and missing outside off stump in the middle of Lords. Not seeing the new ball too well. Almost back in the pavilion. However, however, I've got my eye back in. Start to paint a few singles. Soon we'll be hitting a few boundaries. And before you know it, and I'll be seeing it like a beach ball. Let's talk some English Premier League football. Uh, Manchester United, Tottenham Hotspur, didn't really care about this game, to be perfectly honest. He ended up being a two-all draw. Uh, earlier today, Everton and Aston Villa played out a nil-all draw. BBC football commentator Andy Buckley joins us on the programme out of the UK. Evening to you, Andy. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much. As a Liverpool fan, and you have been a hardcore Manchester City fan, did we care about the Manchester United Spurs result? Uh, yeah, I do actually. Yeah, um, and just to watch it as a spectacle, really, because uh, it is a classic English fixture, uh, and it didn't disappoint. To be honest with you, uh, Manchester United didn't disappoint because it was true to form in terms of the way that they played. No identity, no organisation, uh, and in the English press, uh, they're getting slaughtered at the moment because uh, this they're just drifting. Really, uh, the new partial 
owner, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, was there, uh, sat alongside Sir Alex Ferguson in the director's box. The first time he's seen uh, uh, the team since uh, his takeover, yet to be ratified, of course, by the Premier League. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens at Old Trafford. Uh, but the inquest into what's gone wrong at Manchester United is going to be in depth. It already has been. It's such a worldwide institution. But uh, And I thought Spurs did pretty well, actually, considering they've got uh, quite a few players out. Uh, Hyungmin Sons at the, the Asian Cup. Uh, Kulosevsky was out ill. Um, Madison's injured as well. So they were shorn of a few players, Tottenham. And Manchester United still couldn't sort of produce anything to... Uh, convince anybody that, that they're on the way back but uh, it's going to be a long hard road for United but you as a Liverpool fan me as a Manchester City fan obviously um, we've got a, a passing interest in that picture <laughs> because uh, they're, they're below us in the table Yeah, uh, I just want to talk about Richarlison uh, came from Everton seems to have responded well and uh, Ange Postacoglu starting to play some good football starting to score a lot of goals for Spurs yeah, very much so. Uh, I do like uh, Postacoglu. I think he, he's got a bit something about him and I think English football's really taken to him. And certainly the way that Spurs uh, play, uh, they've always been a, an entertaining side, not always a winning team. And, um, you know, I'd like to think that Spurs could do something this season, whether it's getting the Champions League or, or maybe winning the FA Cup, play Manchester City a week on Friday. Um, and uh, that's going to be a fascinating, the tie of the round, I suppose, fascinating fixture in, in the fourth round of the FA Cup. But um, yeah, yeah, they've done well, Spurs. And uh, and 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 the, the the contrast between him and Eric Ten Hag is that Ten Hag's been there a year longer than Postacoglu, and yet Postacoglu, you look at his team and you think, yeah, they've got something about them. They've got some style. They've got some rhythm. Uh, they, they play to a set pattern, uh, and it's an attacking pattern as well. Whereas Manchester United are just completely devoid. They're clueless. They are absolutely clueless when it. You just don't know what you're going to get from them. You don't know what you're looking for, uh, and and yet they've spent as much money as anybody else. How long before Eric Ten Hag goes? Does he go? Well, they're now saying that he's got until the end of the season to prove himself to the to the new owner. And uh, it was interesting to watch Sir Alex Ferguson there uh, talking to him and welcoming him to Old Trafford. And uh, I seem to recall he did exactly the same thing to uh, the Glazers when they took over as well. And of course, he's been on the payroll ever since as an ambassador of the club. Um, so... United fans will rip into the Glazers and say, well, we've got these American owners who don't care about the club. They've not invested in the, they've invested in the team. They've spent a fortune on the team. They've backed the managers and they've sacked the managers after they've failed. Uh, and the accusation is that they're still there, but they've not invested in the, the stadium, which is going to cost an awful lot of money, whether you remodel Old Trafford or move to a site adjoining it, which is one suggestion, and that's going to cost even more money. But Sir Alex Ferguson was there, cozying up to the new owners, He's been on the Glazers' payroll. He's never criticised the Glazers in all the time. He's been there. And yet Fergie, because of all his achievements at Old Trafford, sort of has this... Um, he's, he's untouchable, really, in terms of criticism of uh, his uh, loyalty and allegiance to the ownership. But there he was, sort of uh, mixing with Sir Jim Radcliffe, which I get, you know, if you're going to introduce somebody to Old Trafford, why not get the father figure of United to do it? But... Um, the problems run deep at Manchester United and uh, they've been overtaken by Liverpool, by Manchester City, by Arsenal at the moment as well, Spurs as well. So United well down in the table. Mm. 
Okay, 20 games into the season for most of the clubs, two weeks into the new year. Liverpool top of the table, two points ahead of Manchester City. When the season started, if you could have looked through a crystal ball, did you see this performance coming from Liverpool? And did you see maybe just just the odd speed wobble coming from Manchester City? Uh, yeah, I did actually, because I, I, people were saying to me in September when City reeled off successive victories, and I was there at Wolves when they uh, got beaten for the first time. I think it was the first uh, afternoon, actually, at the end of September, when they actually dropped points. Uh, and I knew it was going to happen because such is the nature of the Premier League, because there's so many teams that you can beat you. I was there against Crystal Palace just before Christmas when City were two up, cruising, absolutely in cruise control. And then from nowhere, Crystal Palace scored two goals and uh, ended up in a 2 all draw. And suddenly there, in a nutshell, was the fascination of the English game because you just can't predict how it's going to go. I think Liverpool are at Bournemouth, aren't they, next weekend when City get the weekend off. Um, and, you know, you just could, it's not a foregone conclusion that Liverpool will win at Bournemouth. It's not a foregone conclusion who's going to win the Premier League. I think it will come from Liverpool and City. I don't think Arsenal, even though they're very in close proximity, I don't think Arsenal, I think they've faded a bit at the moment and I, I can't see them coming back again. I don't think they've got... Havertz is getting a lot of stick. I don't think they've got a proven goal scorer, which is what they need. Liverpool will be looking that Mo Salah comes back from the African Cup of Nations as quickly as possible. But but people in Manchester see Liverpool as the big, big danger. And it may be exactly the same from a Merseyside perspective on Manchester, but um, it, it'll be one of the two. And it, it, I know it's stating the obvious who drops the fewest points, but teams will drop points. City will drop more points which is why beating Newcastle was just so precious. And I think Liverpool will slip up as well. But but Liverpool are a coming force again, and you can tell that. For Manchester City, Kevin De Bruyne back. Um, boy, he makes just such a big difference to that side, doesn't he? Just such a wonderful player, even at, what, 31 years of age? Oh, unbelievable. I mean, I had a great day at uh, Newcastle on Tyneside, took the family and uh, lucky enough to get four tickets, took my granddaughter, took my two sons, uh, nice meal in Newcastle, fantastic city, uh, and then uh, watched a compelling game of football. Absolutely breathtaking, really. And to be in the away end with 3,000 City fans at the top, to hear that uh, Lee stand opposite the Gallagate end at Newcastle, overlooking the whole of Tyneside. You can see the bright lights in Newcastle in the distance um, as the sun set and game kicks off and then City irresistible the control really that goal from Bernardo Silva was absolutely breathtaking it really was and then you you saw some other quality goals as well Isaac scored a great goal Anthony Gordon suddenly Newcastle from nowhere 2-1 up and then at half time thinking oh going to be a defeat Mark Watson Liverpool fan he's going to be rubbing it in he's going to make it even worse for me the journey home from uh, back to Manchester is going to be a bit grim and then Kevin De Bruyne comes on with his new look haircut his long uh, flowing locks and then he produces that magic and only him can do that I mean and it provokes a big debate on social media I was looking at it on my way home saying who's the best Premier League player uh, is it Gerrard is it Scholes is it Lampard and maybe they're all tinged towards blue, all the followers that I've got. And they were saying, no, it's got to be Kevin De Bruyne. What do you think, Mark? Do you think, where would you, where do you put De Bruyne with Lampard? Yeah, with Gerard, I, I think, look, I think De Bruyne is certainly there. I'm, I'm still a little bit in favour of Gerard because I'm not sure that he necessarily had the best sides around him at the time. I'm not sure that he was necessarily 
Um, again, it's my Liverpool bias. I'm not going to pretend, but I'm yeah. not sure that he necessarily played consistently in championship winning sides or he just had, you know, star after star supporting him and assisting him and helping him. And I think he carried that Liverpool team a little bit more. But look, I think with Kevin De Bruyne, I think you need time, don't you? I think you need 10 years after a player finishes to sit back and really and truly reflect. But, you know, I think Paul Scholes certainly well in the discussion as well. I probably don't put Lampard yeah. up there with the rest of them, but uh, I think certainly Scholes, no. De Bruyne, um, um, Thierry Henry. I mean, there's been some wonderful players, haven't there, over the years? Oh, there has. And that, that's the golden generation, wasn't it? It was the Lampard, Scholes, Gerrard era yeah. that was supposed to have won England these trophies. And City fans, obviously a former City manager, Sven Joran Eriksson, and we chanted his name loudly, of course, for obvious reasons. Yeah. He was diagnosed with cancer, told that he's got less than a year to live. So a lot of warmth, actually, to be honest with you, with uh, in English football, per se, for, for um, the lovable Lothario, shall we say, Sven Joran Eriksson. Mm-hmm. And I saw in the paper today, there was a suggestion, because he's, he's a Liverpool fan, Sven, and he said, I've always, I always fancied managing Liverpool and never got a chance to do it. And I noticed that Robbie Fowler suggested that let's have a Legends match and let's get Sven to Anfield and let him manage mm-hmm. a Liverpool Legends mm-hmm. in the next 12 months, which I think yeah. would be a lovely touch. Yeah, I, I, just going back to that question regarding those guys, I, I think the Steven Gerrard, I think coming back from 3-0 down, um, Istanbul, two thousand and five. I think that 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 was the Steven Gerrard. That was that was the influence of him. That goal to win the FA Cup against uh, West Ham. Um, yeah, certainly. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Mourinho wanted him, didn't he, at Chelsea? And I, I think there was a period of time there, arguably, was amongst the best players in the world. But yeah, De Bruyne. I, I just think a different type of player too, though, isn't he? And um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he, the thing that stri- strikes me about the Premier League is that basically if you set up to defend and there are some very good teams at it, Brentford's, your Fulham's, um, the, the, there's a whole raft of teams. Nottingham Forest did it against City uh, last time they were at the Etihad. The, the, they can set up and they can defend de- very deep. And what you need is, and City haven't had it this season, which is why the, the, everybody's sort of welcoming and celebrating De Bruyne's return. They've not got that player who can open up like a tin of beans and just turn around and say, I'm going to play this magic ball through and suddenly you're you're going to be on the back foot and we're going to be through you. And he did it in 20 minutes. He did it four or five times. Suddenly, he just think he electrifies the whole team. And, and to have that galvanising effect on the rest of the players, the whole, I mean, look, Newcastle fans didn't like it. And us as City fans, uh, stood in the cold at Newcastle, just absolutely loved it. But but just to applaud, really, whichever team you support, just to applaud that unique talent. As Guardiola said afterwards, he said, it's not tactics, it's talent that does that. Whatever sport you're talking about, that ability, just to, you know, if you think of some of the great New Zealand fly half scrum halves, the, 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 the men who kind of like decide and shape the game, the quarterback role, if you like, who can just turn around and say, tell you what, I'm going to turn this from a defeat into a victory. Yeah, I, I, do I, it. I mean, not to the same degree, but I think Louis Diaz brings a little bit of that to Liverpool at times too. Yeah, no, he does. Yeah, yeah. But just the match winners, they are match winners, and which is why they get the big books mm. because basically they they can they can. Um, overcome. They can they can shape games. They can influence games, and uh, they, they are a joy to watch. I mean that that pass for that goal in stoppage time. Who would have seen? I don't know if you've seen the 
the goal, the winning goal. But he just, he plays it over the back and then Oscar Bob runs onto it and he had a little bit of a lucky break because it bounced off a Newcastle shin and then suddenly he knocks it in the back of the net. You're just thinking, wow, that that is just, that will go down as one of my magic moments of of a season, really, that I suppose is yet to come to life because you know, we've got the Champions League to reach its climax. Um, we've got so much to be decided. The FA Cup, which in English terms, to be honest with you, the fourth round of the FA Cup in a couple of weeks. I sort of, I've heard your your uh, jingle before for the summer, and I'm thinking, oh, summer! Oh, if only we could have summer days because we're in the depths of winter. There's going to mm. be snow on the way this week. It's going to get even colder, Arctic conditions. But as you get to the fourth round of the FA Cup, you get a little bit more light in the sky in England. And it's staying light till five mm. o'clock, and then suddenly, guess what? You're in May, and somebody's in the cup final, and that short English summer that we have, whichever day it happens to fall on, whichever year it is, um, you know, and you're in the cup final, and that's it. And it's uh, it, it sort of the, the FA Cup in a way, kind of, is a milestone in the the, the advancement of spring. Don't want to sound a bit too sentimental. <laughs> no, probably am. Hey, just finally, you know what I mean? just just finally, Andy, just an update on Erling Haaland uh, injury status there, and um, talk that he'll be back for the start of February. Is that the general consensus amongst yeah. City fans? Yeah, not rushing him back. I think it's a little bit more troublesome than originally thought. City are going to Abu Dhabi on Wednesday for uh, a week before they come back for the Spurs. FA Cup game, so they won't rush him back for they might that they might not even rush him back for the FA Cup game. Um, but yeah, hopefully it's nothing too um, serious, and hopefully he'll be back. They do need him. They do need him because there's a couple of those crosses that De Bruyne produced, he would have got on the end of them. Um, but see, just going back to your point about Liverpool, and Manchester City it is going to be an intriguing battle right to the the finishing line. And I suppose from a Liverpool perspective. Having won one title, and that title was won in front of an empty cot, wasn't it? Because it was a COVID Premier League title. Liverpool and Klopp will be thinking, well, we need that. We, we really need it. And I, and I get that. And will how will that affect the pressure at Anfield? Having said that, Liverpool have this rare ability among their supporters to kind of uh, inspire. And, and you know, they are a 12th man in every sense of the word, really. Um, you know, So the, the, there's that. And then Manchester City bidding for history because no team has ever won four successive Premier Leagues. Andy Buckley, it's been a privilege and pleasure as always, my good man. I look forward to our discussions. I look forward to the battle. Liverpool sitting top after having played 20 on 45. Manchester City, 43. Aston Villa sitting there on 43. They have played the extra game though and Arsenal rounding out the top four on 40 points. You enjoy your winter, Andy. All the best, Mark. Speak to you soon. See you 17 minutes away from 11. You're listening to SENZ. Telephone numbers 0800 150 811. Feel like I got a little bit of the holiday blues. Not quite on my mojo. Not quite. Haven't quite got the nervous system up just yet. Uh, I think if I was opening the batting and I was playing at Lords, I think I'd be back in the pavilion by now. I don't think I would have been getting too much bat on ball. I think I would have just nicked one outside off stump and found myself taking that long walk back to the pavilion. Robbie, who's producing today, scored fifty on the weekend. By the way, scored fifty for Grafton. Also plays in a band. He's one of those guys that's multi-talented. We'll bring Robbie into the program shortly. Let's go to the phones. Hi, Joey. Yeah, g'day, Mark. Uh, happy you, you too, mate. Uh, yeah. I hope everything's well and everything's all good. Look, I was just talking about the Premier League. Um, uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel was talking the other day about, and he said, what do you think about Man United? I'm a Man United fan. And he said, if you put it in one word, and for me, it's abysmal. But if I come, can come back to that in a minute, um, I think Liverpool 
Liverpool, actually, well, it's hardest for me to say it as a United fan. I think Liverpool can win it, and, um, and City will finish second. I think Liverpool, to me, um, I know De, De Bruyne has come back, and um, he was, he, he's a big cog in, there, in the City uh, side, obviously. But I just think, um, I think Liverpool could uh, get up and, and, uh, and win it this year. I think they've got a big chance, to be honest. The others will fall away. They are. You can see uh, Aston Villa only drawing against Everton, but don't get me wrong. Uh, Everton were deprived of 10 points. I think that's unfair. I know what they did, but it hurts the fans more than anything, but that's another story. But um, And just coming back to Man United, we're just clunky. You know, we, we before today's game, uh, Mark, this morning, we, we had the same amount of goals scored as uh, Sheffield United, and Sheffield United at the bottom. We have a guy that they paid, I think it was $50 million for, uh, Hovland, uh, he scored two goals as a striker. Um, uh, uh, our other strikers, our, our biggest strike, um, goal scorer this season has been McTominay, and he, I think he scored five or six, and he's a midfielder. When you haven't got guys scoring goals as your, as your strikers, uh, and Rashford scored a heap last year, and I said last year, I said, if we lose him or he stops scoring goals, we're in trouble. Man United, we're in big trouble. Our, our strikers are, uh, are not scoring enough goals. Anthony, at 81 million or 80 million, they paid for him. What a waste of money that is! And, and it's sad, but that's how it is. You know, we, we're just clunky. We've got our defence up to our our midfield, our midfield to our strikers. They've just got no idea. I mean, Tottenham should have won this morning, without a doubt. I mean. We're just terrible. And it's hard to say as a Man United Yeah, but it's like anything, isn't it? I mean, we went through 30 years of it without winning a Premier League title at Liverpool, but we were winning trophies in between. And, of course, we came up against the great Manchester United era. Look, English Premier League needs a strong Manchester United. We need the great rivalries, don't we? There is no easy game in that league. Um, I hope you're right. I hope Liverpool can get up and do it. I think they still have the best manager in Jurgen Klopp. I still think he's a better manager than Pep Guardiola because I think Pep Guardiola still has the luxury of basically being financed by an entire country. Um, but, you know, you see Klopp just seems to be able to, they, they recruit well and they seem to be able to take good players and make them great players. And then you've got young talent coming through like Curtis Jones who just looks like, you know, he, he he's going to be a permanent starter for the side. He's going to end up playing a lot of games for England. But, Oh, you know, it, it's interesting. Here's you, Joey, ringing up, and you're so passionate about it, and you're upset, and you heard about it, and there's all these narratives going on, and you've got these great rivalries, and it, it, I think it's, I think it's part of what makes the Premier League just such a big sporting product globally, and I think New Zealand sport can learn a lot from it because we don't have any narratives around our game. We don't have that tribalism. We don't have Cantabrians phoning up now when their rugby team falls over. Um, and it's 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 strange, isn't it? I have more of an affinity to Liverpool Football Club than I do to the Blues, than I probably even do to the Warriors here in Auckland. Um, and yeah, so look, I, I, I'm not upset by Manchester United's failings, but I still want to match strong Manchester United for the greater good of the league and for the greater good of the competition. Oh, without a doubt, Mark. You know, that, I'm the same. I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't get too upset when Liverpool get beat either, or, or, or City or whatever. But I. I want a strong competition and I want to see Liverpool being strong against Man United and, and vice versa. And and when you've got the, the manager coming out and saying, oh, we played well against um, Aston Villa in the first half, Man United were terrible. Yeah, I mean, well, but, the, but, but, they, but they celebrated, they celebrated, didn't they? A nil all draw against Man, uh, against Liverpool when Liverpool wore over them. I mean, you go from, you go from, um, you, you know, you go from winning the treble, you go from winning... 
Champions League to winning all these things to suddenly accepting a nil-all draw at Anfield when Anfield when Liverpool still dominated 76% of possession and suddenly that's a victory for Manchester United and how, you know, it, it's that old saying, isn't it, now, just how far have they fallen if that is now the expectation. Hey, Joey, I've got to move on. Lovely to have you call, mate. Uh, please don't be a stranger to the programme. Love to talk English football, any sport. You're a good man. Thank you. Uh, look, coming up after... 11 o'clock, Ben Strang, uh, cricket commentator, journalist, will join us on the programme. We'll review yesterday's performance by the Black Caps in Hamilton. Great to see a sellout of around eight or 9,000. Um, and Game 3 on Wednesday, we'll have live coverage here on SENZ. Looking forward to that one as well. We'll also talk the Manu World Championships. What is a Manu? It's basically just a bomb, bro. Jump off the wharf, lift your knees up, create a splash. Let's formalise it. Let's turn it into a World Championship. Scott Rice, the event director for that, will join us on the programme round about 11.30. Very, very cool interview after 12 too. A really nice human story. Uh, an athlete by the name of Stu Kerr, former runner, turned surfer, turned open water swimmer. You'll hear that interview between 12 and 12.30. Telephone numbers 0800 150 811. Temper bedpost text machine 8833. The game is over. New Zealand win it. Tim Southey. The stand-in skipper in the field with the final act. Combining with Ishsodi, Pakistan bowled out for 173. New Zealand win by 21 runs. Yes, indeed. Very good performance from the Black Caps yesterday at Seddon Park in Hamilton. Good to see a sellout. Small ground, but good to see a sellout. Great atmosphere. Finn Allen, the star with the bat, scoring 74 runs. And on the bowling side, well, very good performance from Adam, Adam Milne, taking four for 33. Joining us now on the programme to discuss this Black Caps performance and to look forward to Game 3, cricket commentator, journalist Ben Strang. Morning to you, Ben. Welcome. Good morning, good morning. It was a, a very, very good performance last night, I thought, from, from the Black Caps team. So very good signs looking ahead to the World Cup later this year. Yeah, Finn Allen, he's been a little up and down. He's still, I, I think he's still playing for his place in that World Cup T20 side, but he's yeah. starting to show that consistency that perhaps he has been lacking. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I still think we need to see some more from him to know that he has got that consistency. But what I did like hearing was after the game, uh, how he talked about how he, you know, needed to change his tempo a little bit. How um, when Devin Conway got out uh, and Kane Williamson was there with him, that he that he could uh, he could change pace. I guess that's what someone like Devin Conway is so good at is that uh, he might score at, at a 300 strike rate over a 10 ball period, and then when it gets tough, he he gets through it, uh, gets a runnable, uh, and then can attack again. Finn Allen seems to only have one pace that he can bat at, uh, and I think the signs from yesterday was that maybe he's maturing and maybe he's figured out that he can change the pace with which he's batting mm. and he can, uh, you know, take on the challenge of, of getting through a tougher period and then attacking when the opportunity comes. When he's attacking, I mean, he's, he's one of the most fearsome players going around. So much power. Some of those sixes were absolutely massive yesterday. Um, but it's just that other stuff that he needs to improve on. So... Fingers crossed this is the, the sign that he is developing and maturing with his game. Yeah, when T20 first came along, it just very much looked like just, you know, just hit and smash and not a lot of strategic thinking. But even with inside the 20 overs, it has become a lot more strategic and players do need to adapt and players do need to adjust. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I I think it's a you know of all the formats that you know Test cricket is is the pinnacle, but 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 funnily enough, even though it looks like hit and giggle, I think one of the most tactical forms of the game and 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 requires the most thinking and analysis is 2020 cricket. Um, they do so much work on on you know analysing the data and and all that sort of stuff. So they clearly think about this stuff a heck of a lot more than anyone realises. And um, there's so much in, input that they would have into how Finn Allen is batting and, and things he needs to change. And it does to me seem like he's he's taking that all on board. He is learning. Uh, which is, like I say, a really good sign. Yeah, and the challenge there, I guess, from the coaches too, is you don't want to take away the guy's uh, natural intuition and the way he plays it, and you don't want him getting sort of caught into that mindset of sort of um, paralysis by over-analysis. So it, it's mm. got to be it's got to be a subtle evolution, doesn't it? It can't just be a revolution. It's it's that difficulty of, of using the data, using the analysis to improve the player at the same time as giving them that mindset of freedom and and knowing that you know if they do play a, a poor shot and get out uh, but they had a clear idea in mind of what they wanted to do they're not going to be berated for it at the end maybe maybe us fans watching will be like what the heck was going on there but as long as there's a plan and, and they can talk through that and understand and they do continue to free up the athletes to to perform in the way that they want to perform then I think um, yeah that's that's fantastic mm. and, and that also seems to be happening with you know, the leadership of somebody like Kane Williamson, um, when you watch some of the innings Finn Allen plays, you wonder if they're just shaking their heads in the changing rooms, wondering what's going on. But I think, uh, actually, when when he get, when you know, when know someone gets out in, in a peculiar way, uh, they say, OK, well, how can we do that better next time? And mm-hmm. I think that's where someone like Finn Allen's been brought along really well. How concerned should we be with the hamstring injury to Kane Williamson uh, again Kane um, having a really really good summer again showing his diversity across all three forms of the game I, I, the answer is I don't know um, I, I don't know how serious it is obviously he, he didn't come out to bat but the the positive sign from what I saw was that obviously he went off during the drinks break it wasn't like an immediate thing that happened and all of a sudden he was off from what I understand uh, I don't think it was the the last ball before the drinks that it happened, he must have tweaked it and thought, hey, maybe this is maybe it's for the best that I head off. The other thing that I thought was a positive is right at the end when um, you know nine wickets were down, uh, he was padded up and he was ready to go if he was needed for that last ball or two. So um, I, I, I take it that things aren't extremely serious, but when it's Kane Williamson, <laughs> I think we take it extremely seriously either way because he's obviously the, the key cog in this New Zealand team and you don't want to lose somebody of his caliber. I would say, you know, he's come back from this knee injury. He came back incredibly quick um, from an ACL. As, as somebody who's had two knee reconstructions, uh, I know that the hamstrings certainly get tested out when you come back to sport. So in, in, in another way, I guess it's no surprise mm. that, that he might be having a wee hamstring issue after, after coming back from knee surgery. Looked a little bit shaky there at one point in Pakistan's run chase. They were eight for one and then ten for two. And then we saw that wonderful partnership, didn't we, develop uh, between Azam and Zaman. What lessons will we take out of that? Eventually, ninety-three for three. Um, in terms of the way we managed that period, what did you make of the captaincy and the bowlers that we used during that period? Yeah, I mean. I saw we used, uh, you know, Mitchell Santner came in during the power play and was taken to. Fakir Zaman decided he was going to 
go after him. Uh, Mitchell Santon is the player that New Zealand can often rely on to come in and not go for many runs. And he can come in in the power play, he can come in during the middle overs, it doesn't matter too much. He does a really good job. So coming back from COVID, uh, you know, Mitchell Santner wasn't quite at his best, went for 47 runs off his four overs. That's that's very unlike Mitchell Santner and not something that I would expect to happen too often. On the other hand, you're talking about Baba Azam and Fakir Zaman, who are uh, world-class players in this format. Baba Azam is world-class in any format. Uh, so the fact that they've found form, you know, we talk about it a lot in cricket teams. The other team is allowed to have their moments, you know. It's it's about trying to stick to your plans, uh, being patient, and it'll probably come. That's what I think uh, was good about New Zealand is that they weren't searching, that they were sort of staying patient, and when they did get the breakthrough, obviously um, they they you know they took eight wickets and ten overs basically, so um, they they bowled really well there on out. Uh, so I think it was really good signs. Pakistan are allowed to be good in periods. Um, New Zealand will just hope that they're better. Mm. Looking forward to the Test series against South Africa and Australia. Should we be concerned with the the, the form of Devon Conway in the short form of the game? Uh, yes and no, I guess. I mean, everyone's going to be concerned that that uh, he hasn't scored that many runs of late. Um, Devon is actually uh, Devon is a good friend of mine, um, and uh, I know he's been dealing with an eye issue. Uh, certainly in the Bangladesh series. So I think there's a bit of rust there after after a month off after that Bangladesh series and, and getting over that eye issue that he was suffering. Uh, but now that he's back, um, I, I saw much better signs yesterday. I mean, the, the, his first game for Wellington being dropped twice in a row, uh, you know, one ball after the other, and then getting caught the ball after is certainly not something you would expect from Devin Conway. Um, the other night, it looked like he saw the ball flying just, you know, got a little bit unlucky with the first ball that he faced. Uh, yesterday, I thought he looked in much better form, seemed to be seeing the ball well, uh, was doing the things I would expect from Devin Conway. So I'm not too concerned. It's one of those, It's one of those. Um, you know, the classic saying, uh, form is uh, temporary, but class is permanent. I it, think he'll, um, he'll come back strong. Yeah, it, 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 it's a funny way that our sort of domestic season is set up because... You'd argue, um, I guess logic would suggest that playing T20 cricket's not necessarily the best build-up for arguably what should be a very good test series, not so much against South Africa because they're sending out their B-side, but certainly in preparation for the Australians in February. And, and, you know, if we want to be taken seriously, we need to give ourselves the best chance to beat Australia. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I I don't think it is a a good way of building up with with the formats they'll be playing. I think one day, you know, moving from one day is through to test matches, I, I don't see Agree. too much problem with. They're, they're, they're close enough, but 2020 is an altogether different mindset, particularly for, um, you know, some of these cricketers. For, you know, if you're Devin Conway, you're going from trying to hit at a strike rate of 150 to trying to trying to bat for 150 overs. That's a, that's a heck of a change in mindset. I mean, there's little things that stay the same. You know, the process of, uh, how you think through each ball, how you're waiting for particular shots, all that stuff's the same. But you've got to put the aggression away, and that can that can take a little moment to to get through. So it's certainly not ideal. But I mean, it goes back to you know the, the Plunkett Shield. There's a couple of less rounds than there used to be. Um, that's that's not the the priority. It seems on the domestic scene, the Super Smash certainly is with you know it being televised the whole way through. Um, so you know. Part of this is, I guess, the way the professional game is going. 
but but yeah, certainly not not ideal preparation for what should be a fantastic series having Australia here. Mm. I, I mean, I can't wait for that. Yeah, Ben, look, we haven't spoken before, so I just want to ask you this question then. I just want to get your thoughts. Does Henry Nichols retain his place in the test side in February? Oh, that's a that's a that's a that's a tough question. Okay, and it, the reason not what not, because... what not not what the selectors might do. What would you do? What I would do is I would have him in the team. I would I would play him in New Zealand, and and the reason is this. Um, and I think Mark Reason actually wrote a column about this, which was somehow we had the exact same ideas. Um, is that we had Ajaz Patel take. 10 wickets in India, and then the next game, next test match New Zealand played was in Christchurch, and he was dropped. He did not play. Uh, Henry Nichols' previous performance was a 200 in Wellington, where he bats extremely well in test cricket, and then he was taken to Bangladesh, and he still played. Where the stats show Henry Nichols in Asia is not very good. Not a particularly good player of spin. Averaged something like 13. Why is there a uh, horses for courses mentality with Ajaz Patel, but not with Henry Nichols. In New Zealand, Henry Nichols is a world-class bat. Like that, I mean, period. Like he, his numbers are phenomenal, and I think he slots into that middle order very, very well. I'm not saying you know people might not have a good series and that sort of thing, but in New Zealand, I think Henry Nichols is a superb player, and I would play him based on on prior form. It's when we go to these other conditions that I think there needs to be more thinking about how you select these teams because you can't look at the numbers and you can't look at the past performances and not be concerned by what you see. Ben Strang, fascinating point of view. Completely agree with you. I thought you uh, summed that up really, really well and I think you make a really good point around Asia's Patel and maybe the double standards there when it comes to selection. Look, thank you for your time on the programme this morning. Greatly appreciated. No worries, appreciate it. There you go, Ben Strang there. Interesting point that um, Ben makes, 0800 150 um, I know that this is probably being done to death a little bit, but the Henry Nichols scenario, do you put him in the tests in February? He does play well at home. We are playing at home. Do you move on and look to develop younger talent because we need to bring new talent through for, say, the series in Australia in three years' time? And I know we should be looking that far ahead. I think we should be treating series in Australia like the Olympic Games and making sure we do get it right. Um, but then we want to try and beat Australia here in February as well. Um, also, too, Ajaz Patel, you know, they pick and choose when they want to use him. They say, look, you know, we don't really rate him effectively here in New Zealand, but we rate him effectively on the subcontinent. But why don't they then adopt that same philosophy or practice what they preach for Ajaz Patel, why don't they practice what they preach when it comes to Henry Nichols? Uh, the performance last night from the Black Caps, it's funny T20 cricket, isn't it? It is a novelty, like it's entertaining, but you don't wake up with a sense of nationalism because you've beaten Pakistan. It's sort of like you've gone to, it's sort of almost like you've gone to watch an exciting movie and the movie comes and goes and you wake up the next day and you go, oh, that was good, but we're moving on. It's, cricket's in a precarious place at the moment, isn't it? It doesn't really have an identity. One day cricket has nothing. There's no real jeopardy in T20 cricket. One player can take it away. We saw Finn Allen yesterday. The rest of the batting was pretty average. 0800 is the number if you do want to phone the programme. Happy to take your calls. You can also text us here on the Temper Bedpost text machine on 8833. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back with Cliff. 
26 minutes after 11, listen to SENZ. We're going to talk the Manu World Championships shortly with event director Scott Rice. What is a Manu? A Manu's basically just a bomb. You know, lift your knees up, jump off the wharf, jump off the bridge, jump off the diving board, jump off the side of the pool, create a big splash. It's become part of the sort of the um, New Zealand vocabulary. And now they're going to have a World Championship, different qualifying events from right around the country. First one starting in Wellington at the end of the month. So we'll do that very shortly. Let's go to the phones. Hi, Cliff. Yeah, what are, how are you doing? Good, happy thank you. Year. Yeah, happy new year to you. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Black Caps last night was, well, you yeah, know, they were solid. We made the runs. Um, Finn Allen got his, got his 74. It was... Uh, uh, he's probably a long time coming for him to, to score a, a good total like that. He took his chances, short boundaries, he hit plenty of sixes. Um, the Black Caps faltered a bit after that. You know, they, they could have got more. But look, sometimes when a guy, a couple of guys are in, the guys coming in afterwards try to think it's easy or try to keep the, the pressure on and look, it's full. Same with the Pakistanis. They had a good chance at. These three and four batsmen put on a good partnership, but you know the Pakistani uh, bottom half of their batting is always very fragile, and uh, they they certainly didn't show much after that. The worry for me is Kane. You know, I, I don't like Kane playing all the time. You know, the guy is is a bit fragile. You know, he's come back after some major injuries, and he's and he's playing in these twenty twenty games. You know, there's nothing really on this. I know guys like to play, but they rest Ravindra because, you know, he th- he needs a rest. But to me, we've got two test matches against Australia coming up and two against uh, the West Indies, I um, mean, South Africa. And I think they're much more important than these 2020 games. And if Kane ends up getting injured and he can't play or he pulls up in, the, in these next, in the tests because of an injury, I think that is that comes back a bit on the selection. There's lots of players that could be in this 2020 side. You know, we've been mixing and matching a lot lately, and certainly I don't believe Kane does need to play. Um, talking about Ajaz Patel, you know, and, and, and uh, Henry Nichols. I mean, look, Henry Nichols got that double ton, and that sort of saved him because he was under pressure then, even in New Zealand. And now he's... Everybody says, well, he's a great player in New Zealand, but he can't bat anywhere else. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit like that. There's other guys that I'd rather play in a way. I, I, I think um, uh, the, the opener, the boy from CD, could be could be a bit a better player, but it's it's what it is. It's hard to work out sometimes in New Zealand cricket. Yeah, we're, Where they going? well, we've always been fairly conservative, haven't we, Cliff, when it comes to selection? Uh, look, going back to the Kane Williamson point of view, look, you've got to have some of your highest profile cricketers playing. Um, they are the shop window. You know, I don't want to see cricket getting to the point like we've seen with Super Rugby, where the best players are rested and rotated because of a bigger picture. Um. I be honest, I don't wouldn't recognise a lot of the T Twenty cricketers if they walk down the street these days, uh, because I think the game is so fragmented and there are just so many players now involved across the three different formats because the skill set is slightly different. Um, I want to see Kane Williamson perform at a Test level. 
but I think he's also demonstrated, particularly in the last 12 to 18 months, that he can transition from T20 to one day and test cricket as well. But if I had to choose one, of course I want him performing at test level. And so with age, is he becoming a little bit wary? Is he becoming more injury prone? I guess time will tell. I am told, though, he would have been come out to bat last night if needed, if we had lost more wickets. Uh, as for the rest of the New Zealand batting yesterday, yeah, a little bit of a concern, but that is the nature of T20 cricket. You've only got to have one or two players to take the game away from the opposition. One day cricket, you need to have probably five or six or four or five. Test match cricket, you probably need to have seven or eight performing. But that is the fickle nature of T20 cricket. Cliff, lovely to have you on the programme. Thank you for phoning. 29, 28 minutes away from midday, the Manu World Championships are about to get underway. 26th to the 28th, they're going to take place in Wellington. From the 2nd to the 4th of February, they're going to take place in Hamilton. From the 9th to the 11th of February in Christchurch. And then qualifying events in Auckland from February 23 through the 9th of March. With the big finale then happening in Auckland. What is a manu? It's basically just a bomb bro. Jumping off the wharf. Butt enters the water first. You lift your legs up nice and high and you try and create a big, big splash. Scott Rice, the event director, joins us on the programme. G'day, Scott. G'day, how are you, Mark? Yeah, good, thank you. I mean, at its most basic level, that's what a manu is, isn't it? Well, what's your definition of a manu? Well, the manu is a style of bomb, and a bomb, as you've just described, is jumping into the water to make the biggest splash you can. And and as we've seen in New Zealand for so many years, there's a real technique to it. And the, the better the technique, the bigger the splash, the bigger the reaction. Yeah, look, oh, I must admit, money was not even part of my vocabulary until about three or four years ago. It was only when my son started to say, oh, man, I'm going to do a manu, that I started to um, sort of, you know, stand, uh, starting to understand the vernacular. How long's the word been around? Well, it's been around many years, probably in, in the sort of Pacifica Māori communities. Um, some would argue it started in, in South Auckland, in Manurewa, Mangere. Um, and they've been doing them for years. Um, I think the style is reasonably new. I wouldn't want to put a, a, a number on it in terms of how many decades ago they started, but, um, yeah, I agree. Manu has really only been widely used in, in the last sort of five to ten years. Um, you know, using the word bomb is, has been a little bit, you know, it's not, it's not uh, a word, you know, you can the words used for many other things so I think um, Manu has become the kind of name of the of the category the name of the activity um, but in saying that it's a style of, of, of bomb and there are other style of bomb like the coffin which is the feet first kind of in the back uh, and the top of the body goes in second you've got the staple which obviously as, as, as the name suggests is sort of feet and arms in first and then you've got the gorilla which is diving in with sort of the bum going over into a roly-poly. So there's plenty of different styles, but Manu now is, the, you know, the most popular style. Okay, Scott, your first event coming up uh, towards the end of the month in Wellington. Uh, how much, what, what's the response been like? How many, how are entries looking? Look, registrations are going pretty well. I, I think um, we, we're expecting a lot of people to just rock up on the day. That's kind of how bombing contests have gone in this country. It's, it's just rock up on the day. So there's, there's certainly a lot of awareness and understanding out there of where, where we're going to be. 
Um, and we're really happy with, with how many we've got so far, and I think they'll be telling all their friends. So, yeah, as you said, five qualification events around the country, starting in a couple of weeks in Wellington, then move to Hamilton, Christchurch, then Auckland, and then we um, we conclude with a grand final in Auckland Viaduct Harbour. So we, we select 70 of the best, um, male and female across uh, kids, youth and adult divisions, and they all come together to battle it out to become the inaugural Z world champion in the Manu. Is it just the big boys that win this? Have you just got to have a lot of bulk? You know, is it is it the Paeetas that are going to win, Scotty? Yeah, good question. I mean, yes, generally um, someone that's bigger can generate a bigger splash by doing nothing at all. Um, what we've done with our scoring is we've we've got a slight handicap, I guess you'd call it, um, where we adjust we adjust the overall score based on how heavy they are to give the guys or girls that are um, lighter and or smaller in stature a chance. And and um, as you know, they're trying best they possibly can at 60 kilos versus the guy or girl that might be way over that. Um, so that that's something quite interesting that we're bringing in, and we're just trying to adjust it to make sure that it's going to be okay because we. We we don't want to find, you know, uh, people saying, well, that splash is bigger than this one. But at the end of the day, people could be fifty kilos lighter. Mm-hmm. Now, Scott, you're using technology, aren't you, as as a judging mechanism? Do do you have um, backup judges in case the technology does fall over? Yeah, look, we've we've tested. No, the answer is no. Um, <laughs> we'll probably we'll probably run around and and make some decisions. But we've tested, tested, and tested. It's called Manutech. Uh, we're working with the professor um, of biomechanics at AUT, Patria Hume, and we've uh, we've got a, a pretty, I'd like to say, touchwood fail-safe system, where we video every manu, we freeze frame it at the biggest point of splash, and we and we measure the, the the splash height and the volume of water, and that's the predominant scoring mechanism for our qualifiers. So people just, it doesn't matter what they do. It's all about the size of their splash. Mm. And when it comes to the final, we're adding in a sound meter, which was brought in from Japan, and uh, we'll also bring in a sound element. So the more boom you get, um, more of a chance you're going to get a better score. And do you have to have the mandatory NRL shorts and the black singlet to participate? Because that's generally the image that conjures up in my mind when I see kids jumping off the bridges as I drive through Narrawaha and some of the smaller towns around the country. Yeah, that or, or the NBA shorts uh, yeah. coming in as well. Um, yeah, look, they can wear anything they like as long as they're not wearing clothing on top. We're just trying to be, you know, safety um, conscious. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's going to be all sorts of different um, outfits, and um, yeah, look for look forward to seeing them all there. Yeah. Okay, Scott. So just for people that are listening to this that might want to spread the word, first event, just give us the exact date and weekend, and how do people enter the events around the country? Yeah, so, so if, you, if you can do a, a mean bomb, a mean Manu, whatever you can do, um, head to manuworldchamps.com. All the dates and locations are there. But we kick off on the 26th to the 28th of January in the, on the Wellington waterfront where the big jump platform is. We move a week later to Hamilton's Waterworld, the big aquatic centre. We'll operate off the Olympic dive tower there. That's the 2nd to the 4th of February. Then we move to Christchurch, the 9th to the 11th of February at Jelly Park Aquatic Centre. They've got a nice little dive dive pool there. And then we move, uh, we have a week's break, and then we start a uh, three-week run in the Auckland Viaduct Harbour, 
Karanga Plaza, where we've built this very impressive scaffolding tower with two three- and five-metre platforms. That's where the first two Auckland qualifiers will be, 23rd to 25th of February, and then again, 1st to the 3rd of March. Then we finish with the grand final on the 9th, Saturday, 9th of March, to find our world champions. It's going to be a heap of fun. Okay, Scott and Z Energy, they're on board there, the naming rights sponsor, and I see they're doing some wonderful activation at the moment. Yeah, they are. They've been fantastic. It was a pretty simple thing, really. I went and saw them. They said, look, we're all about New Zealand. We want to pump some fun into our brand. We are a fun brand. And so they just thought it was a perfect match. And it it has. it's been just an, a joy to work with the team there. Um, they've got. Uh, they've come up with a fantastic activation called the Z Manu Wildcards. And that is a chance for anyone that possibly can't attend the qualifiers to get one of 10 spots at the grand final and they'll be fast-tracked straight to the final. They don't have to attend a qualifying round. They just send in their video of themselves doing a manu and they'll be judged by the Z team and uh, they'll pick 10 to go straight to the grand final. Uh, Craig's just texted in, Scott. He said a manu is a vatuvai. Yeah, Manu Vatavai. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He certainly would have got a bit of that over the years, I'm sure. Yeah. Hey, Scott, lovely to have you on the programme. All the very best for the upcoming events. Thanks for having me on, Mark. 20 minutes away from midday, you're listening to SENZ. There you go, the Money World Championships. Uh, great to have them being sort of formalised. Good fun event going right around the country. Been crowned the world champion. Who would have thought, eh? You could grow up eating pies, loiter outside the old bakeries and the tuck shops, jump off the wharf and your NRL paraphernalia and NBA paraphernalia and be crowned a world champion. 20 minutes away from midday. If you want to phone the program, 0800 150811. If you want to talk Manu World Championships, if you want to talk about your favourite Manu spots, when did you first hear the terminology? Love to hear from you. 0800 150811. Equally, um, just going back to our previous discussion, Regarding the cricket, you would have heard the conversation. Kane Williamson, bit of a hamstring niggle. Does he play? What does the meaning of T20 cricket have other than entertainment? Does Henry Nichols play in your test team for the upcoming series against South Africa and Australia? 0800-150811. Updating the NFL for you at the moment. Dallas at home in the wild card. They are getting pumped by Green Bay. 20 points to nil at the moment, three touchdowns. So Green Bay doing a demolition on the Dallas Cowboys in the wild card of the NFL. Second quarter, 3.23 remaining. It is 14 minutes away from 12 o'clock. We will catch up with Stu Kerr after 12 o'clock. Stu was a promising young runner in this country for a long time and then uh, injury sort of um, Brought his athletic career to a bit of an end. Went over to Perth to work. Um, got into a surfing. Had a really bad surfing accident. It's taken up open water swimming. About to do an event called the Rock Nest Islands from 20 kilometres. It's a really nice story. Uh, it doesn't claim to be an elite swimmer, but it's just um, yeah, it's just a really nice story. <clears throat> learning a little bit about athletics. Learning a little bit about open water swimming. Um, and a story of adversity as much as anything. So we'll do that between 12 and 12.30. Uh, someone's just texting in, how does someone that doesn't understand sport get in hosting gig on a radio sports show? Pay peanuts, get monkeys, I guess. I, I assume that's talking about me. Um, 
couple of replies to that, I guess. Um, clearly this person missed that day at school where, I think you were five maybe, where they taught you how to turn a radio on or off if you didn't like something you were listening to, but must have missed more than just the one day at school because doesn't know how to write their name either, doesn't know how to spell their own name. Just another gutless wonder who just, what, what did they call them? A troll. Is that what they call them? A troll. I bet you you're still listening though, eh? You're still listening. Anyway, Robbie, how are you? Yeah, all right. What a good thank you. I, I learned how to turn a radio off when I was when I was younger. Well, it's the old thing, isn't it? I got a guy yesterday ringing me up, having a crack at me too, because um, I talked about David Warner and he didn't like the fact that I was talking about David Warner so negatively, and he didn't want to switch on and have something negative on. I'm like, well, just switch off. I turn on music stations. I don't like a song. I turn it off. I turn it back on when I do like something. I don't. I say that if you don't like an opinion or you don't. Don't listen to talkback radio. Anyway, are you a Green Bay Packers fan? Yeah, due to due to the uh, the family. Where are the family? Um, all in Wisconsin. Yep. So uh, so yeah, grew, grew up. Um, yeah, uh, liking the what liking are they the Packers. Like cheese heads. Yeah, cheese heads. That's the one. Huh. Um, and then I ironically hate cheese. So yeah, doesn't really make much sense. But Brett Favre. Yeah, great of the game. Um, and yeah, m- most recently Aaron Rodgers before he went to the Jets and then uh, proved his money worth by getting injured in the first minute. Yeah, well, I tell you what, the yeah, I know that's, and I tell you what though, Dallas absolutely flogged here at the moment, twenty no second and two, so they've got a chance here of first down and got a chance of possibly getting on the scoreboard. They wouldn't want to go into half time. No. They'd want to get a touchdown going into half time, wouldn't they? All got picked oh, off, picked off. So there we go, intercepted, and it'll be Green Bay who'll <laughs> run one in. It's all over. Green Bay are going to win this. Dallas are on their way. They're gone. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not. A, I'm not a huge NFL guy, um, but I, f- I follow Green Bay, and all I know is that I I got on Green Bay to win the Super Bowl at sixty-seven to one. So, <laughs> I, yeah. some, something tells me that still won't happen, considering I, we were the last I, I, seed. I, I'd like to see. I'd like to see the 49ers win it. I don't think they will because they've got that quarterback, Brock Purdy, who was, is known as Mr. Irrelevant. He was the very last draft pick. And if you're the last, last draft pick, you get the nickname Mr. Irrelevant. And, of course, he was picked up as their third-string quarterback. He's now the starting quarterback. He's now breaking, well, pretty much owning every major statistic this season in the NFL. A lot of people still not prepared to give him credit Mainly, I think, because he was such a low pick in the draft um, and he's surpassing all expectations. And I do like those feel-good stories. I do like the underdog stories. So I'm sort of quietly hoping the 49ers can go and do it. A lot of people saying they are the team to beat, but I think they've also been vulnerable in recent games as well. Yeah, they're favourites of the TRB. Yep. Uh, 287 to win the Super Bowl. Who's second um, favourites? Baltimore Ravens, yep. 375. Then you've got Kansas City at 6. Buffalo Bills, 650. Uh, well, Philly Eagles at 12. I will say either the Ravens mm. or Kansas will win it. Right. And then... I will go with, as my outsider, are they still in it? The Eagles. $12? Yep. Yep. I got lines at 15. I still think the 49ers will come up short. Right. Well, pa- Packers, are, Packers are in at 20. There's the update everyone, everyone needed. They've mm. come into $20. So. Mm. Uh, okay, so that's the NFL. So it is uh, 20, what is it, 27? So, yep, so the... Kick successful, 27 points to nil. A minute 50 remaining in that first half or in the second quarter. 
and it is Green Bay leading 27-0 over Dallas. Uh, Brett just texting in, hey, what are, are you working the mount on Saturday morning? Yes, I am, the 35th edition of the Tauranga or Mount Monganui Half Ironman, one of the great events on the New Zealand triathlon calendar, one of the big races. If you are in the sport, that is the one you want to win on both the men's and women's side. World-class fields on both races. Looking forward to this one. 35 years it's been going and such a rich history in such an iconic location. Swim in Pilot Bay of two kilometres, 90-kilometre bike ride around uh, up through Papamoa, Mount Monganui itself, and then a run which takes in the base track of the mount a couple of times uh, in normally stifling conditions in front of very large crowds. So yes, Brett, I will be there. Come and say hello if you are there, mate. Love to put a face to the name. It is seven minutes away from midday. Right, we are coming up to two minutes away from midday. Really cool interview coming up after midday. It's just a nice story of adversity, a little bit of human endeavour in it, and just an insight into open water swimming, a little bit of athletics as well, two sports that I clearly do enjoy. Um, we'll also open the lines on 0800 150 811 It is still the Green Bay Packers leading the Dallas Cowboys. I also see that if uh, anybody here into their billiards... Does anyone like the uh, snooker, the days of Dean O'Kane? Because um, Ronnie O'Sullivan has won a game. He's beaten... What's he done? So Ronnie O'Sullivan fought back to claim a record-extending eighth Masters title with a thrilling 10-7 victory over Ali Carter at the raucous Ali Pally or the Alexandra Palace. Uh, O'Sullivan, already the youngest ever winner of the tournament, becomes the oldest ever champion too, aged 48. Well, I was just actually having a conversation with uh, Sam Hewitt out there in the uh, office area about greatest athletes of all time, and I sort of said, look, might be a bit cliched, but I still think probably Michael Jordan, but we can get caught up, can't we, with the big American athletes because of the broad coverage they're given, but where does a guy like Ronnie O'Sullivan sit in the landscape? And some of these other sort of, I guess, niche sports, but are they niche? I mean, American football's pretty niche, yet... The Yanks will tell you Tom Brady's up there as one of the greatest athletes of all time. Anyway, news coming up next here on SENZ. And then after midday, as I said, we will bring you a really cool interview. And then we'll open the lines on 0800 150811. You can text us here on the Temper Bedpost text machine, double eight double three. Next guest is a young man who is a remarkable athlete. When I say young, he's in his mid-30s these days. He was a very good runner back in his day. 342 for 1,500 metres. To bring context to that, John Walker won the 1,500 metres in 1976 and 339. 342 would suggest that you should run a sub-four-minute mile, 358, 359. But my guest just narrowly missed out on it, mainly due to injuries at key times. He would train with some of the best runners in the country, the likes of Robbie Johnson, two-time Olympian, Dale Warrender, Michael Aish. And he was a young man from Auckland's North Shore. He picked up a qualification in geology and headed over to Australia to work in the mines. While over there, he got into a little bit of surfing. And then while surfing one of the breaks south of Perth, he ended up having a very serious accident breaking his back, having to be heli lifted off that particular beach. To rehab himself, he discovered swimming, and from that, open water swimming. And very shortly, he is going to take on the Rock Nest Island Swim, 20 kilometres. 
Rocknest is an island that sits off the coast of Perth. It's been a remarkable journey. I was lucky enough a couple of weeks ago over the Christmas period to go swimming with him and I was just blown away by how well he does swim. Particularly for somebody who didn't grow up swimming, particularly somebody coming from a running background. You would have heard me say this on the programme many times, but swimming is a taught sport. It's governed by technique. It's governed by flexibility. Flexibility that you tend to lose as you get older. It's like a game of golf. You can play all the golf in the world you want, but you won't shoot a low score unless you've got good technique. And that is swimming. My guest, his name is Stu Kerr. He joins us on the programme. Stu, good afternoon. Welcome. Yeah, g'day, Wally. How are you, mate? It's good. always good to talk to you. Good conversation. Yeah, it's uh, been a hell of a journey, hasn't it, Stu? I mean, you grew up on Auckland's North Shore, and I, I'd imagine like a lot of New Zealanders, you got involved in running. You had aspirations of wearing the black singlet and the silver fern and representing New Zealand at Commonwealth and Olympic Games. Um, tell us a little bit about how your athletics career sort of got underway. Yeah, I guess I, I grew up in Murray's Bay and went to Rangitoto High School um, and competed in the, obviously in the um, national um, secondary schools and sort of had some good results there. Um, sort of finished second in the 3,000 metres as a, as a senior boys in the high school and did the steeplechase, dabbled in that, picked up some medals. Um, and then sort of Robbie Johnston sort of approached me and wanted to, we sort of took a few of us in, started coaching um, and then really sort of really focused on that after high school and through university um, and then sort of working way through juniors and picking up some some national medals and things like that, um, working way into the seniors where you start running with all the, you know, the big guys and, um, yeah, it sort of just kicked on from there and then, um, you know, you have those aspirations, I suppose, but, you know, injuries and things like that and careers and funding, I guess, and, you know, all those things that sort of can be roadblocks to people sort of, um, yeah, kind of got in the road a little bit, but that's all right, such as life. But, um, yeah, really enjoyed my time as an athlete. It was sort of pretty short-lived, actually. I think it was all finished by 2005. It was probably, I think I was only 24 years old. Um, mm. But, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Stu, to do what you did, to run 342, to win medals at yep. 3,000 metres at New Zealand secondary schools, you still yep. got to have a head like granite. you still got to have strong mental fortitude. Were you always tough? Did other people comment on your mental toughness growing up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. I was even as a as a young kid, you sort of I always had a bit of a, a a burn to win. You know, you sort of you have that competitive nature um, across all sports. I sort of I played cricket and soccer and um, other things through high school, and then I think just that transitioned into athletics, and it's very much an individual sport. You know, um, quite a selfish sport, I think at times, but you know, and then it carried through. So had some success and, you know, won national medals and seniors and things like that. I think it was third in the 1,500 metres at the national championships in 2005 and uh, also third, I think I got a third in the 3,000 metre champs in 2005 as well. So so, so um, who, who were the athletes that you were racing against in New Zealand back then in the 2000s? Was, that, was Alan Bunce and those athletes still running? He's still yeah, Buncey had sort of, he was sort of doing the longer stuff, but he'd kind of, he was sort of winding up a little bit, actually. Um, he was probably struggling with a lot of injuries. I'd managed to do quite a lot of training with him, though. Um, I think Robbie Johnson was actually coaching uh, Alan Bunce for a while there, too. Um, so I think we did a few runs up in the Whitex, and um, yeah, it was that was a pretty interesting time. Um, you've, you've done that yourself, Mark, you know all about that. Um, but yeah, you know, that mental toughness, I think that's something you're sort of, um, it's a talent that you might have, but 
you know, hard work will always beat talent if talent doesn't work hard. So. Yeah, and it's one of the great lines, isn't it? Uh, Robbie Johnson, two-time yeah. Olympian, 92-96, yeah. 27 minutes, 41 for 10K, about four or five seconds yeah. quicker than what Dick Taylor ran back in 1974 to try and put it in context. Robbie's not a guy yeah. who had a lot of time for fools, but he always had a lot of time for you, so he clearly saw something in you, Stu. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He um no, Robbie was Robbie was a great he was a great coach and a great guy, just a, and a and a great mentor, you know, um just to keep young guys focused and um you know, keep keep them level-headed. Um he was really good for that. Um I think it was yeah, 2003 um my dad actually died and then I had Robbie who sort of oh, he was he was just a good coach but also a bit of a father figure there. Yeah. Um so that was always that was that was really really good to have that. Mm. Um, Stu, as you said, injuries, and then you know you think about your career, and you decided that geology and really the best place yep. to do that, and to go sort of in the mines there in Western Australia. And I'd imagine as you got more involved in that with the injuries, your running dropped off, but you picked up surfing. It was something you always had an affinity for. Um, how serious were you taking the surfing? How, how how much surfing were you doing? How much did you enjoy that? Yeah, surfing's always been there for me. I sort of always surfed as a kid growing up as well. I grew up around the beach and that was always there. So it sort of took a bit of a back burner when um, athletics was kind of the main thing. And then um, after it was done, I sort of had the time to really focus on that again. I just really enjoyed it. It was just something that really gave me pleasure and um, it was always it was always there for me. Um, and then so just moving to Australia, I studied geology and there wasn't really much I could do with that in New Zealand. So um yeah, moved into sort of mineral exploration through Western Australia, um, and I had the time to surf. So yeah, I surfed a lot. Um, got into it; it was my main thing. It was the thing that kept me probably the most happy. I, I used yeah, I, I surfed for, for as hard as I could, as much as I could for all those years um, after twenty oh five. So right through to the accident, I guess, which was um, only three, pretty much three years ago to the day. So um, yeah, and I, you know, geology's been great for me. It's been a career that's taken me. Um, around the world, you know, I've worked in Africa and Canada, um, and and most parts of Australia and remote parts of Australia, um, you know. And I enjoy getting outside. That's that's what I like to do. So, mm. tell us about the surfing accident. Where were you, and and what exactly happened? Yeah, so I was surfing um, down in Margaret River. It's about three hours south of Perth, um, and I guess. There's, there's, there's loads of good waves there. It's, it's like a world-class um, region to surf. And so we, we go down there a lot. Um, and I was just surfing at a spot which is sort of quite remote, sort of about you've got to walk up, sort of you park your car, you walk up the beach. Um, it's out the back of Gracetown. It's a place called Umbies. You, it's probably about a kilometre walk up the beach, up a little sand trail or along the soft sand. Um, it, they're all reef breaks around this region. So And I, I wasn't doing anything that I wouldn't normally do. It was just a bit of a freak accident, the way I sort of fell and ended up. Um, I ended up basically on a on a cro- on a coral head or like a limestone uh, head of reef, and that broke my L2 and L3 transverse process bones. Um, it was pretty pretty major. Sort of actually at the time, I sort of I tell people I think I heard my back break underwater, but I obviously didn't. But it was just the intense pain that was just like a instant, you know, sharp pain. So I broke both of those bones. Mm. How, how did you get yourself out of the water, and um, how did you get yourself medical treatment? Yeah, so I sort of, I just sort of floated there for a bit and then kind of like had my, sort of draped on my board. The whitewash was sort of pushing me in. Uh, luckily, there was um, there was a guy on the wave behind me. He noticed I was in trouble. And Holly, my partner Holly, was on the beach and she could sort of see what was going on. So she sort of ran out and then 
both of them sort of helped me in. Um, I just sort of lay flat, kind of on my board and sort of washed in. They sort of helped me up the beach. Um, you know, he had to ask permission. He, he said, what, you know, are you okay? I said, no, no, I think I've broken my back because um, I couldn't put my feet down. I sort of could, but it was just the pain was so intense. And he was like sort of freaking out. He didn't really know what to do. Um, but he was actually a trained surf club lifeguard. So um, it, it worked out good. You know, they got me in, they stabilized me on the beach. Um, and I was there for about an hour and a half before the um, the medevac or the helivac came in and picked me up. But there was no cell phone reception there. There's nothing. So Holly had to run up to the top of this cliff and try and get the SOS going on. And people were running up to the car mm. park and trying to get the ambos to, to meet there, but we couldn't get there. Mm. So needed the helicopter. What's going through your mind when you've, you know, you're lying there, you think you've broken your back, you're in a world of pain, are you, are you thinking worst case scenario, are you thinking am I going to walk again, and what's going through your head mate? Um, I kind of, you sort of, yeah a lot goes through your head, I sort of, I could feel my legs and could wiggle them and I could move, but it was just intense pain, so I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't actively do that, but I knew that I could do that, so um, I wasn't entirely sure what was going on, I knew that I'd broken something in my back because it was just the pain. I just couldn't even move really without without this mm. intense pain. Once the adrenaline wore off, you know, and that that was probably ten minutes or so. I got to the beach, but um, yeah, you, you worry, you do, you you really think, you you know. I think when I was in the helicopter, all strapped up, that was probably the moment of truth where I thought, far out, what have I, what have I done? You know, like what's going to happen? Um, am I going to surf again? <laughs> That was the main. The first thing popped up. I was like, mm. "Am I am I actually going to be able to surf? Like, what have I done? You know?" Yeah, it's funny that that isn't. I remember having a few accidents on my bike when I was training uh, on my road bike uh, triathlon and stuff. And you gave the handlebars, get hit by a car, and breaking your collarbones. And the first thing you think about is, "My bike okay? <laughs> am I going to be able to run?" <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it's, yeah. it's 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 strange, isn't it? The thing that gets you into trouble is the thing that you still hope you can get back to. Uh, Stu, but it was a bit lackadaisical, wasn't it? Once you actually sort of arrived at hospital in terms of the treatment and then checking you out and um, yeah I mean it wasn't exactly uh, it sounds like it was all a bit too sort of uh, she'll be right yeah mate yeah it certainly was I got I got there and I was sort of once they did the scans so they got I got a bunch of x-rays done um, they needed to figure out what I'd actually broken they knew that I'd broken something in my back but they needed to figure out what exactly was um, and I I broke my back about 8 o'clock in the morning I think I was basically by about four o'clock i think it was the doctor came through and had the scans and i was sitting there on you know pretty doped up on a few painkillers and um he said oh you you've, you're all right you've got a stable break so you've broken your l2 and l3 transverse process bones but they haven't broken off so you don't need any surgery i think you can you don't need to be airlifted to the perth royal hospital for anything further um yeah you can just um yeah you can just you can just when you're ready you can go and i thought what <laughs> um and i tried to I said, when? He sort of said, oh, when, you, when you're ready. And I tried to sit up off the bed and I, uh, it was just so much pain. I think I, I think I fell backwards, just almost ready to vomit. And the nurse sort of came over and she said, I don't think he realises how much pain you'll be in. And she just whacked the IV mm. full of probably some further morphine. Um, then they stuck me in a wheelchair, mate, wheeled me out the door um, to the car in the emergency department. Holly drove me back down to Margaret River. And, um, yeah, I had to spend the next... 10 days or so down there while we were still on holiday um, and just in a world of pain. But they didn't even give me really any painkillers. So I had to hobble into the emergency department down there the next day. I hadn't even slept properly. I couldn't even sleep nothing. And then 
um, the doctor just kind of was standing in the reception area and he sort of looked at me and he thought, are you all right? Like, what's happened? I said, oh, I broke my <laughs> broke my back yesterday. And he kind of went, oh, I think I better see you before I see anyone else. And he, when he found out that I really didn't have any painkillers, he just prescribed me a whole pile of oxycodone and, you know, slow release ones and all sorts. And then I was sort of okay um, beyond that. But it was pretty scary not getting anything proper to, to fix that up. You know, it was, yeah, mm-hmm. it was a lot of pain. So then it was just a simple case of time and um, hoping for it to yeah. all, all heal? Yeah, time management and just, you know, I didn't, I couldn't do anything until those bones had sort of like at least fused a little bit um, back together. But I just was in so much pain. I couldn't stand, I couldn't walk, I couldn't sit down, I couldn't lie down, I couldn't, you know, I needed help like going and getting in the shower, going to the toilet, like everything was just a major battle. And luckily I had Holly there through through so, that that whole process, which was amazing. So, 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 uh, t- so tongue in cheek, it was just a little bit more painful than running the wider rule with the boys on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a little bit pain, more painful, mate. I think it was a little bit different, but um, yeah. although that concrete monster can get you, mate. But um, yeah, yeah, it was it, it was it was weird. I sort of I found a couple of days later, I found that I could get myself down to the the Margaret River river mouth and actually just hobble into the water and um, just be suspended in the water you can't i wouldn't float around or anything but just sort of hobble up so that all the weight there was no weight bearing or load going through my spine or mm. through my back um and i used that for therapy every day um pretty much straight away actually because they encouraged me to move around because it was a stable break mm. um and that was you know the old water therapy coming mm. coming through so that was good you're listening to SENZ. My guest on the program is former new zealand runner Stu kerr who left new zealand at 24 very good runner in his day um, took up a job in geology in the mines and then got back to his passion of surfing, ended up having a terrible surfing injury. Which brings us to the next part of the interview, Stu. Um, like a lot of athletes, we need our sovereignty, we need our sense of self-worth, we need to wake up and challenge ourselves at some level every day. It was athletics, it was then surfing. How did you discover swimming and open water swimming? Yeah, so one of the first things when I was doing my rehab, and I did a lot of rehab um, with with a really great guy down at um, down at the physio, and he was he's, he was actually actually a really good rugby player, he's an Irish guy, and he, he we did a lot of Pilates um, actually on reformers and strength work and things like that, and I sort of said to him like when like the first thing you know athletes say is when do you reckon I can get back out there sort of thing. Um, I said, you said, well, what are your goals? And I sort of said, well, what about Easter? He said, oh, okay, um, Easter's late this year, is it? I said, no, Easter's at the beginning of, I think it was April. He's like, oh, okay, well, let's just take one step at a time. Um, but I said, what can I do? What can I do to, to stay fit? Can I swim? And he said, yeah, swimming's a, swimming will be a really good way for you to, to rehab yourself. And so I started swimming. Um, and that was just, I'd go to the pool. I don't know, I sort of. I could barely swim 100 metres without stopping. And that was when I realised, geez, I'm really unfit. <laughs> At the same time as um, I kind of really enjoyed that journey of sort of the swim, using swimming. Um, and then I started to, to, to go to the beach and swim open water. I, I never joined a squad or anything like that. Um, th- that was obviously way later. Um, I just used swimming as a means of processing that, um, you know, staying mentally fit, uh, well and fit, um, healthy, and just using that as a bit of rehab. And then the open water came after that, soon after that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, Stu, I mean, you've picked up the sport. It's a tough sport to pick up. Um, I mean, it's a technique-based sport, like a golf swing. So so understanding the fundamentals, the principles of swimming, did you get coaching? I mean, how did you, how did you um, 
yeah, how did you garner your technique? No, I just, I never had any coaching. I, I'm a sort of like a self-taught swimmer. I just, um, I've always been comfortable in and around the ocean and sort of um, in the water. I just sort of watched a lot of, watched a lot of other people swim, watched a bit of video, few videos, talked to some, I've got some friends who are really good swimmers um, and they've given me a lot of tips and I sort of just talk to them um, and swim with them, get a bit of guidance. But most of the time it's just all by feel. I sort of, um, sort of taught myself a few things and I, I had lots of issues with my stroke and lots of swimming <laughs> problems, as you can imagine, um, and just kind of plugged away at it, ticked away and watched a lot of YouTube videos and getting some technique drills and just started applying those. It's probably not the best way to do it, but it seems to have worked for me to, to now, but I probably now need to join a squad and get some coaching. So, Stuart, it went from being a rehab to becoming a passion to something that you, you really enjoy now and that you're really driven in to the point where you've yep. entered this Rockney swim, which is a 20-kilometre swim. You've had to qualify for yep. that. To qualify, you did a 10K event where you swam basically two hours, 30 minutes, which is remarkable for a non-swimmer. Um, yep. And so what? This, this is your thing now, is it? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I um, Yeah, I sort of. I swim more than I surf now. I don't, you know, it's sort of, I used to love surfing more than anything. And I think now I love swimming more than surfing. So that's kind of a, <laughs> a weird thing for me to say, but um, yeah, it's, it, I've, I've just fallen in love with, with open water swimming. It's um, yeah, it's just something I'd, I'd like to do it every day. Um, if I'm not in the pool, I only swim in the pool twice a week. Um, and I might go and do some drill sets, but the rest of it is all in the, um, all in the open water. Mm. Um, and, you know. and, and to put it in context, yesterday uh, as part of your training for the swim, you d went out with a group and you swam 10 kilometres. This is no wetsuit, this is just, you're not out there in a wetsuit, but you're out there in some very warm water in Perth and you swam 10k. Yep. Now to put that in context, that's 400 lengths of a swimming pool with no tumble turns. Um, and, you know, with, with some very good swimmers uh, and employing some of the, um, some of the tactics that go with open water swimming. In terms of using other people to draft off, etc. Yep, yep, yeah. So we've got a big group. I swim with a big group called the Pod Squad down in um, North Cottesloe to Cottesloe. We swim that stretch. There's people down there every day. Um, we've got you know people that are elite swimmers right through to all levels. But um, yeah, yesterday we did a 10k swim. Um, you know, we, there's a group of us. There'll be different levels. So I think in our group there was about 10 swimmers. Um, and you know, some of them only did eight Ks. I actually just did the last two K on my own. Um, but yeah, drafting is a thing and you practice, practice all these things, you know, and I think, what is, what is it? What are you 15% less, um, energy, you know, spent when yep. you're drafting? 15% drag coefficient. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's part of open water swimming. And when you do these 10 K races, you want to try and use that, um, as, as best as you can, but it's also nutrition. You know, we have to practice that, um, you know, and you've got to get that right, mate. I, I think as a runner, um, I probably didn't really ever think about that too much um, because I was doing middle distance stuff, obviously. But when the marathon, once you start doing marathon swims or marathon races, you know, that becomes really important. Training number one, nutrition number two, conditions number three, you know. Mm. Yes, Stu, I want to ask you this. So, so in terms of the training for open water swimming, say versus the training that you did in athletics, I mean, I, I struggle with, I struggle with the training principles of swimming. They, because it's a non-weight bearing sport, they think they can smash and bash and thrash you a bit harder. Um, what, what, what's basically been the fundamental difference between swim training and athletics training when you look back? Yeah, it's so it's so different. I um, and being like a runner, I didn't understand swimming, and I sort of when I started, I, I just applied what I knew from from running. Um, but you know, to go to the pool every day and just slam those 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 sets out, and they don't 
they didn't make a lot of sense to me, which was I'm not a swimmer, but to do endurance training, um, threshold training and sp speed work all in the one set and then turn around and come back the next day. I was like, you guys do that? Wow, okay. I mean, I, I would never have dreamt of doing a bread and butter workout of 10 times 460 seconds on the track with 60 seconds recovery and you'd come back the next day and you'd just do it over and over and over. It sort of, it didn't really make any sense. I, 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 I train a little bit like a runner actually. Yeah, I do well, a, I don't, a I don't, but I don't disagree with it and I think it's been very effective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's been really effective for me. I mean, I've gone from a non-swimmer to, you know, a two thirty ten k swimmer, um, and just to basically on my own and applying what I knew from running as that that endurance and threshold and being, getting in that zone of being comfortable, being uncomfortable, but you're not exploding, and you can play around with that a little bit, you know, and you get your nutrition right, and you can sort of, um, you get a feel for the water and how you what speed you're swimming, and you kind of learn that. But that's quite similar to running and pace judgment. You're listening to SCNZ, Stu Kerr, my guest on the programme, former a New Zealand runner um, turned surfer and after a surfing accident now open water swimming, living in Perth. Stu, you're going to do the Rockness swim in February, it's 20 kilometres. As I said, you've had to qualify. There is a lot of sea life in Perth. Uh, tell us a little bit about the swim and tell us about, I guess, some of the peripheral things that surround this race that make it greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, it's a really iconic swim. It's probably, I think it's one of the biggest open water swim events in the world now. Um, I think there's going to be, there'll be over two and a half thousand swimmers in total this year. Um, and I think there's probably at least 450 soloists. I don't know the exact um, number of that. And the rest of it's made up from duos and teams of four. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's yeah, when you talk about marine life, I think we're in one of the sharkiest coastlines in the world. Um, there are some big white pointers and um, lots of other shark species around, but it's not something that's really ever been a thing to worry about um, in my mind. I, I, you know, I'd be lying if I said it and think about it, but you, you sort of get to a point where you do so much swimming, it becomes comfortable. But the Rotto Channel Swim, it's, they've got great safety around it all. Um, you know, every swimmer or team it has to be accompanied by a boat, um, a, a skippered crew and also a kayaker. So you have to be assisted with a kayaker. Um, but this, the, the swim's grown immensely since 1956, I think, was the first solo crossing. Um, and, you know, and nine to put it, they didn't run it actually um, a, an organised event until I think 1991, since 1956, even though people were doing the crossings. Um, and, yeah, it's just grown for, it's huge. It's, it's grown from, say, 16 solo swimmers in 1991 to about 450 now. So, yeah. Mm, yeah, remarkable. Okay, and you, you're on track, and are you are, are you looking to genuinely? Is it about finishing this, or are you actually genuinely looking to race it? Or I mean, is there, is there a difference? Yeah, there's a difference. I think my goal was to to qualify. I wanted to be in the first wave off the beach. Um, there's a champions of the channel, which is amazing. They're they're the elite swimmers, and they're gonna. I mean, mate, some of the times they're pumping are incredible. They, you know, I think Bailey Armstrong came over from Queensland last year. He swam three forty eight and broke the record. Um, we've got our local boy, Kyle Lee, and the women are incredible as well. All the records went last year because the conditions were so good. Um, to put that into perspective, I think Bailey Armstrong and Kyle Lee are probably swimming 65 or 60 seconds, 67 second, 100 speed the whole way across. Um, I'll be be really happy if I can, you know, it's my first mm. time. I did a duo last year and we, we swam five and a half hours in our duo. I'd be pretty chuffed if I could sort of swim 
somewhere around about that. Um, but it all depends on the conditions and how you how you go mm. on the day, mate. You know, mm. it's a uh, yeah. It, it's. It, I just want to put it in context for people. So I encourage everyone to go down to their local pool. Four lengths of most pools in New Zealand, because most pools are twenty five meters. Um, go out and swim as hard as you can for four lengths, and then put in context that the top swimmers are doing that. Okay, twenty kilometers of it at one o six one o seven pace. It is simply remarkable what these top athletes in sports like swimming athletics and these endurance-based sports and these athletes actually do, Stu. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, it's, inc- it's incredible to think about those speeds. You know, like my, I don't know what my cruising speed is, but it's probably, you know, I'd probably be sitting on like 135 or 140 sort of speed and to, you know, I can't even go to, I can't even swim a 65. There's no way I couldn't <laughs> even do that with a top, top pool, you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's, it is, it is remarkable. Yeah. But, but, but good pool swimmers don't always become good open water swimmers and it is a slightly different skill set out there. It is um thing. And again, you can get different conditions. And so, Stu, I guess you've just got to get out there in all conditions too. I mean, there's no point not going out on a windy day. Absolutely not. No, like we swim every day regardless of what the conditions offer up. So yeah. like in Perth and winter, we swim all through winter as well. And if it's four metres and southwest winds, well, you know, tough luck. It's going to be a hard day in the office. Well, there'll be at least a half a dozen of, of us which will turn up and swim. Um, and if it, even if it's just two k's, you know, it might take you thirty minutes to to swim the first k up against the current into the waves. But then you can come back in twelve minutes. You know, it's it's a lot of fun. So. Well, Stu, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure hearing your story and catching up, mate, and we wish you all the very best over the sort of the next four to five weeks in the build up to this race. And we might do a little bit of a follow up interview. So uh, go hard, my good man. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Good, always good chatting with you, mate. Hope you enjoyed that. Just something slightly different here as we continue our holiday programming here on Monday the 15th of January. Telephone number is 0800 150 It's amazing just how big these sports are becoming, sports like open water swimming. Go to Takapuna Beach here on Auckland's North Shore on a Saturday morning and between the marker boys off the boat ramp there, it's pretty much State Highway 1. I was just talking to Stephen McIver actually out there in the office Um Earlier, and we were just talking about the main sports being under siege, particularly rugby, rugby league, losing a lot of players, young players, particularly once they get to sort of high school level. But those kids still want to play sport, and they're moving in completely different directions. I've got my kids involved in water polo, sport that I never uh, did myself, and I'm amazed at how many kids play that at a grassroots level. Uh, surf life-saving kids involved in that. Amazing how many young people do that on the weekend as well. Um, what are some of the other boom sports out there that historically haven't been acknowledged as mainstream sports here? So fall outside of rugby, rugby league, netball, cricket and football. I'd love to hear from you. What are those other big sports that you're noticing growing or just don't get the coverage? I mean, I'd imagine that mixed martial arts is another one. Um, not MMA, I'm just talking... Um, I'm in karate, um, judo, those types of sports. 0800 150 is the number. Love to hear from you. Okay, it is 17 minutes uh, away from 1 o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. Uh, Mark Watson with you through to 2 o'clock. 0800 150 I just casually was talking earlier about the greatest athletes of all time. I was just having a conversation um, with Sam Hewitt earlier and he just casually asked me who I thought the greatest athlete of the 20th century was and or greatest athlete of all time was and it's, it's always a hard one isn't it because I guess athletes today have the luxury of social media and 
their story can be told a lot easier. Their achievements can be told on a much grander scale than perhaps was the case for athletes in the 20th century. But I still probably go with Michael Jordan in terms of athleticism, state of mind, um, mental toughness. Someone texted in and said, check out Babe Dedrickson Saharis, a female athlete. And I'll be honest, I hadn't heard of her, which I'm a little bit embarrassed about because I've done a little bit of reading on her. And Mildred Ella Babe Dedrickson Saharis was an American athlete who excelled in golf, basketball, baseball and track and field. She won two gold medals and a silver in track and field at the 1932 Olympics before turning to professional golf and winning 10 LPGA major championships. Ranked 10th by ESPN as the greatest female athletes of the 20th century. Now clearly ESPN would have a very much an American flavour to it. Um, But I just thought, why not throw that out there? Those obscure athletes that would have to be in the discussion for the world's greatest ever athletes. Emil Zatopek, a runner who in 1948 or 1952 won three gold medals, the 5,000, the 10,000 and the marathon, all at the one games. Also won gold in the 10,000 metres at the 1948 Olympics. Won silver in the 1948 Olympics in the 5,000 metres. But imagine that, winning the 5 to 10 in the marathon all at one Olympics. You've got other great runners out of Finland. The great Pavel Nurmi. Nurmi was an absolute freak. Won gold in the 10,000 metres in 1920 in Antwerp. Individual cross country in 1920 in Antwerp. Teams cross country at Antwerp. Won gold in the 1,500, 5,000 cross country, team cross country in 3,000 metres at the Paris Olympics in 1924 and then won gold in the 10,000 metres in Amsterdam in 1928. So nine-time Olympic gold medalist. Yet we don't often include these athletes in the discussion. We seem to be very heavily influenced by American sport these days and by European sport. Any other names that you'd like to add to the mix? Where does Wayne Gretzky, the great ice hockey player, sit in the context of things? has a number of records in ice hockey that will never be broken. His records will stand the test of time like Sir Donald Bradman's batting average will in test cricket. Took a sport that was very niche, very North American and sort of made it global. Maybe not to the same degree as Jordan did with basketball or Tiger Woods did with golf, but certainly changed the game and the way the game was played. Now who's New Zealand's greatest ever? Athlete. It'll always come back to Peter Snell, won't it? Lisa Carrington, because of the number of gold medals she's now won. 
but I think you can put weight on cert, greater weight on certain sports over others. You know, people call me biased when I include Erin Baker in the discussion of our greatest ever female athletes. You know, won the Hawaiian Ironman Women's World Championship on two occasions. Bias or educated? I've been up there, I've done the event. I understand the sport, I know what's involved. And therefore, I put it right up there because I know what is involved and what is required. Jump on the phone, 0800 150 811 is the number. Uh, we also just had the discussion yesterday, and um, we're going to play the interview with Hayden Shearman after one o'clock. We were talking athletics, and one of the big talking points within the athletics community in this country um, is the fact that Zoe Hobbs was not nominated or recognised for a Halberg nomination. But how do you quantify her achievements? She actually hasn't won anything majorly internationally, but she's the fastest New Zealand female ever over 100 metres. She's the only athlete out of Australasia, Oceania, to ever break 11 seconds for the 100. So how do you compare those achievements to, say, someone winning the Lawn Bowls World Championship? How do we quantify the achievements of Stephen Adams playing in the NBA? How do we quantify the achievements of Chris Wood playing in the English Premier League, scoring a hat-trick against Newcastle? They're not playing for individual world titles, are they? But they've got to a level of sport which is would almost be deemed impossible for a lot of people in this country to get there based on the sheer numbers and volume of people playing those particular sports and how difficult it is to get into that top echelon. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. Keep your texts coming here on double eight double three. Special thanks to um, temper bed post, a text machine. But just keen to sort of mix it up a little bit. Where do people sit on the Zoe Hobbs situation? It's a hard one, the Hellberg Awards, isn't it? Really only caters for black and white in regards to the achievements need to be recorded ultimately as first, second, third type scenario. You can't, you know, remotely say that the best netball player in the world is as good as the best women's basketball player in the world because I think women's basketball is far more global. But if we were to have a female basketball player play at the highest level in the sport, would she get the kudos that perhaps our top netballers get? Lines are open, nine minutes away from one. Now, uh, someone's just texted in saying Arthur Porrett, I was talking about Paavo Nurmi and his remarkable achievements uh, running for Finland in the 1920s at various Olympic Games, Antwerp, Paris, uh, Amsterdam. Um, Arthur Porrett, New Zealander, of course, won a bronze medal in the 100 metres back in 1924. A lot of people won't realise that, but we've actually won a medal in the men's 100 metres. Made famous, of course, that race by the movie Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrahams going on and winning the gold medal. Then, of course, part of the movie was also Eric Liddell uh, winning that 400 metres. Um, Arthur Porrett, 
um, ended up becoming the Governor General of New Zealand, I think from 19, I think it was late 1960s, early 1970s, a very distinguished military career as well. Um, does another text coming in here asking, I guess asking the question, and it says, does the average New Zealand fan care about the Halbergs? So often they have been awarded to undeserving winners that most Kiwis have no connection to them. Lydia Cohen was a joke. She didn't win anything in that yet. Look, I agree with Lydia Cohen. She got it because she was 16, and I didn't agree with her winning it at the time. I think what it does, it when she did end up winning major championships, that's when she should have been in the fight. Um, Scott Dixon seems to never get a look in. No, Scott Dixon, I think, did win the Halberg Award, or certainly Sportsman of the Year Award, for winning um, the Indianapolis 500. It feels like a bit of relevant event that is purely um, a bit of a night out for the athletes. Look, it's just recognising um, having an overall National Sports Awards, isn't it? But it's just become very subjective. I've always been a little bit critical of some of the judging because I just don't think that people go out there and do the due diligence. It's easy to, you know, certain sports here will get all the media coverage and often those sports are actually minority sports globally and what we deem to be minority sports are actually huge sports globally. I remember when, um, I think it was 2001, my good mate Cameron Brown got second at the Hawaii Ironman and it wasn't a great year for New Zealand sport. He ended up losing the. He won the New Zealand Sportsman of the Year award, but lost the Halberg award to the Swindell sisters, who won silver. They only won silver as well. And I'm sitting there going, "Hang on a minute! How can you give the Halberg award to rowers who get to share the workload, get to share the anxiety, get to share the um, mental distress, and have each other to push each other on in an event that lasts seven minutes over a guy who probably no one knew a lot about?" who's out there for eight hours in an individual event which knows no names, reputations, etc. And those things have been little frustrations over the years, but I think in more recent times they've actually been pretty good in terms of getting it right when it does come to the Halbergs. Uh, and someone just wanting to know why Sophie Pascoe doesn't get the same recognition as Elisa Carrington. Well, it's simple. There's just not the depth in para sports there is in um, able body sports, and, and that's just the reality of it. I've been to, done a lot of Paralympic Games. I've commentated the recent Asian Para Games. There's just simply not the depth, but also within the parameters of the um, levels of impairment, you've actually got a big contrast. And so, is it a level playing field? Mm, it, it, it's a tough one, but it's one of those really sort of contentious issues you've got to always tiptoe around. What I will say about our power athletes, they do provide a lot of inspiration for people who have had to face adversity and get a lot of people hope, and they're remarkable athletes in their own right, but I'm just not sure you can compare the achievements of one versus the other. I think Olympic Games gold medals are always going to carry a lot more weight than Paralympic Games golds. Black isn't waiting, and they've left Bedford now. Bedford doesn't seem to be able to speed up. And Black has really made a long go for home. The question really is, has he gone too soon? Because Taylor's quite capable of going, as he shows now. And this is a piece of testing by Taylor, who moved up to Black's shoulder, just to let him know the threat is there, and the power is there, and the Black Vest of New Zealand, which hits the front. And Juma has been dropped slightly, and for Bedford there doesn't seem to be a hope of a medal now. He's back 
30, 40 yards behind the leaders, beaten in the closing stages once more for pace. It's Taylor New Zealand at the shoulder now of David Black of England. Dumar closing up. Blackie Stewart, the champion, being lapped. He's got three to go, and these boys have got two, and the gold medal seems to be between England and New Zealand. It's Black for England. Taylor still so happy on the outside, and there he goes. Can Black respond? He's gone very early. He's given Black a chance. Black undoubtedly has a chance if he's got anything left, but Taylor's the man going away. Black can't go, and it looks like the first gold in the track events for New Zealand. Taylor now, six, seven yards clear of David Black. And Black doesn't look to be able to get back. He's beginning to close again, but no doubt, here's an athlete following the steps of the Snells and the Halbergs at the Commonwealth Games as Richard Taylor takes the gold. David Black for England. The yeah, the 25th of January 1974, it'll almost be 50 years since Dick Taylor won that gold medal in the 10,000 metres, beating David Black, the world record holder, in what was a world-class field on the opening day of the track and field programme, and arguably the last of the great Commonwealth Games. I put that medal up there with those won by Peter Snell in 1960 and 1964 at the Olympics and John Walker in 76. And it might only be the Commonwealth Games gold, but if you know the backstory to Dick Taylor, you understood the quality of the field and where the Commonwealth Games stood um, in athletics back in the 1970s, I think most people would agree. An iconic moment in New Zealand sport. They had the Dick Taylor commemorative 10,000-metre New Zealand Championships to discuss this, to get the results, to talk athletics, to talk Dick Taylor, is the voice of athletics in this country, Hayden Shearman. Afternoon to you, Hayden. Welcome. G'day. Yeah, good to good to be here. And it seems uh, some shivers down your spine, doesn't it, listening to that audio? Um, yeah, really cool to relive those memories 50 years on from what was um, really right in the midst of the, that New Zealand golden era of, of track running that, that started with, like you said, Helberg and Snell and then, of course, capped off with um, with John Walker winning winning the gold in, in 76 and in, in the 15. So, yeah, that, that was a, an amazing thing. And I think the thing with that 10,000 victory um you know, Dick, Dick Taylor really resounded with everyday Kiwis at the mm. time. You know, just a, a guy in, living in Blenheim running 200 miles a week and doing the, the mahi, and it really paid off. And, and the great thing about that audio is the way that that strength came through from that, that massive base of mileage that he had. So, uh, yeah, a, a amazing story. Yeah, and I've spent a lot of time over the years interviewing Dick extensively and um, stuff that I've still got at home that hasn't necessarily been told either. But, he, um, you know, he, he represented New Zealand in 1970 in um, Edinburgh at the Commonwealth Games and hadn't performed in the 1972 in Munich and had seen the likes of Dick Quacks and Rod Dixon and Walker all sort of delivering and he felt that he hadn't and... You know, then this, yeah. and then getting, I think it was Moran who'd coached him originally and then going to Arthur Lydiard and um, tells a wonderful story about how Arthur, you know, had Peter Snell come up to him moments before the race and have Peter say to him, 
I think you're going to do something special today, Dick. And he said that was just the last little piece because Taylor always said that perhaps the thing that he missed, the missing ingredient, was belief. And then as they say, the rest is history. And just the strategy of Lydia to sit down and say it's going to be 30-odd degrees, they're going to take it out at world record pace, you sit on this lap count and you don't move. They'll either smash the world record or they'll blow to pieces. And just having that faith and the ability to listen and have faith in Arthur was just simply remarkable. Um, So great to have the national 10,000-metre champs named after him. What were the results in the men's and women's? Yeah, so interestingly, it was uh, those in Dunedin will, will know that it was about 31 degrees there. So that they ran in the evening, uh, so it was more like 27 degrees, but certainly reminiscent of the 74 games in Christchurch. Um, so results were uh, Anika Arledge, uh, a great sprint off with Bridget Dennehy over the last, last lap uh, to take out the women's title in, in just a tick over 35 minutes. And then Michael Voss, who's been... He's featured really prominently sort of in minor medals in, in the national champs, everything from from the marathon down to sort of cross-country distances, 5K, 10K, but uh, really showed his class last night, just uh, leading from the tape, uh, winning in a time of 29-29 over Julian Oakley, who's, uh, you know, I, I hate to think how many national titles Julian Oakley he has won. So to, to take down Julian and win it in such a commanding fashion and scorching temperatures and run a, a fantastic time is, is pretty impressive from Michael and really shows his, his training heading in the direct, right direction. He's getting getting faster with age as well, which is um, always good to see. Yeah, is he uh, coached by my old PE teacher, Kim Stevenson? Yeah, that's the one. Yep, yep. yep. So Kim I had Kim, as, I had Kim as a PE teacher at Manabit Grammar in 1984-85, actually. Love that. Yeah, so, yeah, Kim Stevenson, he's one of the uh, great coaches in the the New Zealand athletics community, and he's always got time for everyone he talks to. And, um, yeah, he's doing a, a wonderful job with Michael Voss down there in Rotorua these days. Um, and... Yeah, Michael, I believe he's a, he's a carpenter, so he's often on the tools and then puts down the tools and then he's out there running, um, I imagine, 100 to 200 mile weeks himself. So uh, talk about work ethic. Um, yeah, the guy, the guy gets it done. Now, were there any qualifying marks here? I know that there was qualifying for the World Cross in Serbia. Yeah, so World Cross Country Champs is coming up again. Um, we're sort of in catch-up mode from, from the COVID era. So this this year internationally, we've got quite a few different championships as well as the, the Olympics. So, yeah, end of March is the World Cross Country Champs. A bunch of guys and girls have got their eyes on that. The main qualifier from last night was, was Michael himself, who, who just dipped under the, the qualifying standards. Um, and I imagine with that national 10,000-metre title and a bronze at the National Cross Country Champs last year, he'll be um, almost certainly booking his ticket to, to Serbia, uh, which is really good. I don't think there were any others from, from the women or the junior races who managed to uh, hit the times that they needed to. Um, essentially, we, we have a performance standard. Um, it was 29.30 uh, for the, the senior men, and if, if you hit that, then you go into the, the nomination pool. Um, but it's looking like we'll, we'll be able to send a good, good solid team over to to Serbia but as I say it's such a congested international calendar this year it's almost hard to keep up with because that same month we've actually got the world indoors so we'll see a lot of the the middle distance runners um, targeting that one instead 
Um, and then that same month, we've got our own national champs in a very busy domestic season as well. So it's all, all coming thick and fast as we sort of lead into the Paris Olympics this year. Yeah, what's the expectation on our elite athletes? There was maybe some criticism last year at World Championships that perhaps the season was too long and that, you know, maybe some of our athletes need to miss part of the domestic season. Is there, is there a prerequisite regarding athletes and qualification or is there an expectation on them or can the athletes sort of pick and choose how they want to set their year up? Yeah, fortunately, we've got a few of the big names have already punched their, their ticket with the uh, auto standard. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily uh, selected to go, but it, 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 yeah, it's a, um, a good, um, yeah, you're almost guaranteed once it just needs the NZOC tick of approval. Um, so, you know, the likes of Zoe Hobbs, Sam Tanner, uh, Geordie Beamish and the 3,000 metre steeples, uh, they've all, all uh, ticked the, the box in terms of the, the runners um, and hitting the times that they need to. Uh, so they won't need to go and chase points. And so this is the, the other side of it. So it's sort of the step down um, those athletes that haven't met that, that auto standard uh, will need to go and chase points. And this is where the domestic season and also once you get into the Northern Hemisphere, early stages of summer, where athletes will need to go and say, OK, this athlete's got this, this uh, event's got this number of points. I'll need to target that event and hopefully I'll get that place and that time um, and then really line up those those events to chase the chase the points. So here in New Zealand over the next uh, about six or seven weeks, we've got essentially a major meet every weekend uh, somewhere around the country and there's different uh, levels of, of grading uh, for points being available for those events. So uh, a lot of those athletes like uh, Julian Oakley, who I mentioned, who I believe is going to be chasing the 5,000 metres, he'll need to be hunting out those 5,000 metre races with, with good points on offer. Um, and the number one uh, 5,000 metre race in New Zealand will be the, the national championships in, in Wellington in mid-March. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of how the calendar is looking for athletes uh, at this stage, for those who are targeting Paris. But... Uh, I imagine most of the team has probably already decided in terms of hitting those autos. Uh, we we struggle to get athletes through on that point system uh, just because we have such a high bar set by NZOC in terms of world ranking uh, as it goes into uh, selection for Olympic Games. What are the next... Um, major track and field meets coming up over the next couple of weeks here in New Zealand that uh, people around the country might be able to get along and watch and see some of these athletes in action. Yeah, absolutely. And and the the summer tour is a really great opportunity to see a lot lot of our Olympians up really close and personal. They're um, pretty low key friend, friendly meets, but with with great international competitors competing alongside you know top high school athletes. So you got the full. Full breadth, but essentially, uh, well, started this weekend in, in Dunedin uh, alongside the South Island Colgate Games, and then this weekend coming up is the first of the major uh, classics that run throughout the the summer season. So that's Potts Classic o over in Hawke's Bay. Then we move uh, to to Hawara, where we've got a real really cool jumping meet. Um, so I'm not sure if Hamish Kerr has been um, announced for, for that but yeah towards the end of January um, 
Hamish usually comes across and you can get right up close to the, the high jump bar and watch him jumping 220, 2.30 uh, right next to the bar. So that's a really cool one to go to. And then we go to Wellington, uh, sorry, Wanganui, then Wellington uh, and then up to Hamilton. Uh, the international track meet in Christchurch towards late February and then the Sir Graham Douglas meet in Auckland on the 10th of March and then we're back down to Wellington for the national championships in mid-March. So that's sort of how it's looking and I'd really encourage you know any, anyone around the, the country, if you're near one of those centres, uh, pop along. It's usually you know 10 bucks to get in um, and there'll be food trucks there and you can just park up and watch a really great afternoon or evening of athletics. Hayden Shearman, my guest on the programme. We are talking athletics. Um, Hayden, we had the recent nominations and then the finalists announced for the Halberg Awards. Um, no sign of Zoe Hobbs. Now, I understand this has created a fair bit of discussions amongst the athletic fraternity and the wider sporting public. Uh, what What's your view on this? And, and where's the area of contention on her not being nominated or not being put forward? Yeah, so when I, I first read the, the nominees, I, I read through, honestly, about eight to ten times, read through the list just to make sure I missed it, hadn't missed anyone. Then I text some friends and said, am I reading this wrong? Has is, is Zoe not been nominated? So, yeah, Zoe Hobbs, uh, our, our leading 100-metre sprinter, um, broke 11 seconds for the first time this year, first, first Kiwi ever, first. Oceania athletes, so no Australian who's done it either. When you think of the the quality that they've had over there with Kathy Freeman, Sally Pearson, uh, absolute world leading sprinters, um, and so she's faster than all of them over the hundred metres. Um, so just immense feat uh, from her to break that mark this year, and she's performing with the top women uh, all year long. And then not to see her in that nomination criteria, uh, nomination list. Um, was yeah a bit of a shock to be honest, and uh, I, in in some ways I get it because it's so hard to compare one sport to another. How do you compare spear fishing, which did have a nomination, to the hundred meters, to football, to to rugby, and so on? Um, but you know, in the, in the athletics community, we don't weigh each event equally. You, you know, Tori Peters, the javelin thrower, was nominated, and great to see she had a great season, broke the New Zealand record last year. Uh, so great to see her amongst there. But every athletics fan understands that the 100 metres carries more weight uh, than every other event there. And like I've said uh, many times on the show before, there's two global sports on the planet. It's, there's football and then there is running and at the foremost of, of running is the 100 metre sprint. And even if you go to most track meets, you ask any athlete doing jumps, throws, distance running, would you rather be a 100 metre sprinter? And they would say, yes, I would rather. That's where I started. I ended up in jumps or I ended up in the 5,000 metres. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I was disappointed that she wasn't nominated and I think what I'm most disappointed about is just the, the not not acknowledging and understanding the feat of speed. And when you look at coaching across various disciplines, rugby, football, hockey, speed is such a premium and such a commodity. And every coach wants to see fast athletes out there. And if we are a country that can produce sub-11 sprinters, you know, you think about right now we've got 20 sub-12 second uh, 
female sprinters in the country. Imagine if we had 100 of those um, and had the coaching around the country, had the experience uh, to build that speed. You know a lot of those athletes are going to end up in football, end up in rugby and make a massive impact on the playing field, bringing that speed into their, into their sport. So I felt like it was an opportunity missed to acknowledge what a... Um, what a massive achievement that is, um, and also to not see Zoe Hobbs's coach, James Mortimer, who took four female sprinters wearing the black singlet to the World Champs uh, last year, not to see him nominated. Uh, and just as a side, six cycling coaches were nominated. So is that the fault of Athletics New Zealand, though? I mean, for the initial nominations? Well, I don't know. Uh, you, you may know better than me how the nomination criteria... Well, yeah, criteria normally you're put forward by your sporting body initially, and then yeah. um, I, I would have thought... Um, but, but look, I can understand why maybe some sports organisations don't bother because... As I said, I think it is a little ambiguous. Like I, I always look at, you know, and I take your point, I just think there are some sports and some achievements that you can't just necessarily measure in terms of gold, silver and bronze. I mean, I look at yep. Stephen Adams. I mean, Stephen Adams, is he ever going to win himself a Hellberg Award? The guy plays in the damn NBA, man. There are only 30 teams. You know, you think how many kids play basketball globally. He's a starting centre for one of the top teams. You go and look at Chris Wood scoring a hat-trick against Newcastle in football in the Premier League. I mean, how do you, what, what sort of weight do you put on that versus, say, I don't know, a player shooting 90% in a, a netball test against Australia. I mean, and then you look at the Zoe Hobbs, and, and, and yeah, but the thing with me is I just would like to see the judges that sit on the Halberg Awards and those that make the decisions just do greater due diligence, and if you're not prepared to do the due diligence, don't be on it. Yeah, yeah, and maybe a bit of a, a explanation for each nominee, you know, Correct. what did they do? Rationalise it, yeah. The, yeah. Um, and all we need is a, a couple of bullet points there to explain. Um, but, yeah, I imagine Murray Hilberg, if he was watching Zoe Hobbs when she broke the record, uh, national record, Oceania record in, in Wellington at the National Champs last year, um, I'm, I'm sure Murray well, would have given her the nod. <laughs> well, you go right, but you go right back to, say, the first Māori or whatever, arriving here on New Zealand shores, go back to Captain Cook, you go back to... Uh, Treaty of Waitangi, you go back through the history of New Zealand, no woman in history in this country has ever run faster than Zoe Hobbs and yet she can't get nominated Yeah, yeah In Taranaki, she won Taranaki Sportswoman of the Year um, which uh, deservedly so um, but yeah, I, I, I just assumed that that would carry on to the, the Hellbergs, mm. but who knows She, if her trajectory is looking like she'll have an even better year this year, mm. so you know, this time next year, I hope I'm, I'm eating my words as she uh, goes up to uh, potentially um, be a finalist for the, the Hellbergs. No, no, next never, year. ever be, be. A, yeah, never, never, ever be. Nice thing is, mate, you come out, you say it as you see it, and I agree with you, never be a coward-wise after the fact, you know, and um, I think they have got it wrong. I don't think it's a strong year for sport, and how she misses out is beyond me as well when you put it in the context you've just provided. And, and just before we do let you go, how's your own form? Oh, the running's coming coming along. I, I went out for a little trot with some of the local junior athletes here in Taranaki, and um, I was managing to keep up. But I definitely I finished a little bit earlier than they did, and uh, definitely glad I did. So uh, yeah, the the young ones are, are certainly looking pretty fit. <laughs> uh, Hayden, it's been a privilege and a pleasure, my good man. Thank you once again for joining us on the program. 
No worries. Always good to chat. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. So the Zoe Hobbs situation, fastest athlete ever out of Australia, New Zealand, first female athlete to break eleven seconds, and arguably one of the biggest events. Also, probably one of the most. Um, oh, let's say I wouldn't say it's one of the most honest events. I think you're trying to compete against times which I think are manufactured. If you take my drift, uh, how do we measure? and put weight on achievements like Zoe Hobbs when you can't necessarily put gold medals next to it. How do we factor in the achievements of Stephen Adams and the Chris Woods and some of these New Zealanders who are part of global teams and the sports are amongst the very biggest in the world? 800 150811 Ryan Fox yeah, might even fall into that category even just winning on the PGA even winning on the European Tour is a big deal when you look at just how many people do play golf globally I guess you've got to have some parameters you've got to have some set rules so that things don't become too ambiguous but there's always got to be exceptions to the rule 0800-150811 is the number. Just had a text that came in earlier from Patrick. Thank you for sending in, Patrick. He goes, hi, Mark, enjoying your show. Always appreciate you offering something different from rugby and cricket. I'm a typical Kiwi lad, so I do enjoy rugby and cricket. Look, so do I. And I think we've covered off um, cricket today. Um, uh, he goes on to say, my wife runs a lot of half and full marathons. At the tender age of 50, I've started training to enter some 10K events. Absolutely loving it. Yes, it's hard, but also rewarding. I have a newfound respect for top flight runners, Patrick from Ashburton. Oh, look, I think what you find was, look, at the elite level in any sport, you've got to be exceptional, don't you? You have to be really, really good at what you do. But there are just some sports that are harder than others. There are some sports where you have a level of mental duress, which will have you questioning yourself, your very existence and also so brutal that's why so many people don't tend to take those sports up I mean people play golf because it's fun it's enjoyable a lot of people don't swim or run competitively because it just damn well hurts and it's boring and it's lonely and it's hard on the joints etc and so those that do reach the top in those sports are exceptional not just physical freaks but also mentally tough um, 0800 150811 I'd love for you to jump on the phone and give us your thoughts on the Zoe Hobbs situation uh, anything else also Dick Taylor what a great race that was 1974 uh, almost coming up to 50 years hard to believe I'll tell you a few stories about Dick Taylor off the back of the break if no one does phone through uh, you can text us here again on the Temper Bed Post text machine 8833 29 minutes away from 2 o'clock you're listening to SEN Stephen McIver with you between 2 and 6 this afternoon let's go to the phones hi Conrad Hi, Mark. Yeah, hey, um, yeah, a bit surprised that um, she hasn't been uh, nominated. Is it nominated for the Hellberg? Yeah, nominated. Now, I'm not sure That's if it's Athletics New Zealand's fault initially for not putting an initial nomination through, but um, I wonder even if they had have put one through, the fact that you can't actually quantify a, a result with the time, whether it would have actually counted for much anyway. Yeah, yeah, just before I get to my criteria, though, I mean, you can't, you can't take the Hellberg's like you can't take them like a hundred percent seriously on the results because it is a hard, hard thing yeah, of course um, it is, yeah. to judge. Um, but just on the criteria, so so yeah, I, I'd kind of divide it into like three kind of because you got your world kind of sports. But it's not like golf, for example, like Ryan Fox's is yeah. obviously pretty yeah. tough. 
And then you've got Olympic sports, which are like big in some countries, but not in others, like probably rowing and a few others like that is, is probably another yeah. criteria. Um, and then you've got, you got New Zealand sports, like um, not to give it too much of a hard time, but rugby, rugby and netball and cricket are yep. not what I would define as global sports. Correct. Um, so therefore, the... Um, I mean, this is like a, if you can kind of think of like a matrix, like a three by three kind of like, you know, like, I mean, just to make it, you know, just somewhere to start off. Yep. Um, so yeah, one thing about running in athletics though, is it is a world sport. It's an Olympic sport on top of that. And it's, um, yeah, the, those kind of times, if you were say top 20, I mean, this, let's say a tennis player who was ranked in the top 20, they would be getting probably a, a, at least a nomination anyway. And even, and even just. Well, I agree. I mean, um, you know, you've only got to go back to Lydia Ko now. She was 16, but she, you know, ended up being highly ranked on the professional women's circuit, and that was good enough to yep. be recognised. I'll say this about athletics and track and field. They build the Olympic Stadium for one reason, for that sport. So, and what is the biggest sporting event in the world? Um, outside of, obviously, FIFA Football World Cup as well, but it's the Olympic Games, yeah, isn't yeah. it? So that puts context of yeah. athletics in place. And so I'm with you, and I think yeah. you summed it up nicely. She's amongst the top 10 probably female sprinters in the world um, wow. in, in, in arguably now look I think a lot of the runners in the 100 metres both the men's and women's are doped to the damn eyeballs to be perfectly bloody honest probably more so on the men's than the women's putting that to one side I mean she's in the game now she's in the fight you know and yeah, um, yeah I, I just think that we've got to find a way of somehow quantifying that achievement yeah, yeah, I think so too. And um, and it, it, but anyway, that, that it doesn't have to be. You know, it's obviously not an exact science, and you can't take one hundred percent seriously. No. But but about like something like you know, um, it, it is a, a great achievement. And I, I was just surprised. It, 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 hey, it's come full circle, huh, Mark? I mean, usually the Hellbergs were criticised a lot for being too kind of obsessed with um, you know, Olympic kind of stuff and things like that. And and now kind of uh, they're, they're taking into account other, you know, well, well, I well. Th- but so, I think, uh, but I think sport has, I think sport has evolved a lot. And I think the definition of sport is far, gr- uh, far broader now than it once was. And we have, to, we have to evolve with it as well. Um, I think yeah. we're also starting to gain an understanding that what we might historically have deemed as sort of minority sports in this country are actually truly global sports. And so yeah. it is good to yeah. see. Um, but look, I mean, it's always a hard one, isn't it? Because, it should just be a celebration of another remarkable year for New Zealand sport. But we ultimately end up talking about the controversy surrounding. I think in more recent times, they've pretty much got it right. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying, because I remember in the, in, the, in the 80s and so forth, they'd have some great performances maybe in cricket or something, and, 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 um, or even a global sport like soccer, like Winton Roofer or something like that. And yet, um, you know, it was it was interesting to see the the, the help is getting criticised a little bit for like being obsessed with you know like individual sports like rowing or or Olympic sports. Yeah, uh, um, but, but, but now but, they're actually they're actually full on you know taking everything into account, which is fantastic actually. I think. Yeah, look, I think some sports and some athletes have a greater advantage. Like I'll take Lisa Carrington as an example. I don't think we should belittle her every year. I mean, do the Swiss belittle Roger Federer because he's so dominant? Do the Americans? Do they belittle Tiger Woods? Oh God, Tiger Woods again. Mm. Um, you know, the thing with Lisa is you still got a peak in one week of the year. Now, somewhere like golf, you've That's got a true. chance every week, haven't you? Tennis, you've got a chance every yeah. week. You know, you've got a thousand oh, opportunities um, yes, to, to sort of right the wrongs. Um, and mm. they are tough, tough sports. Uh, but look, I think, you know, other countries, you know, someone's just texted and saying, do other countries have issues with their national sports awards? Well, normally other countries just 
you know, like in Australia, if you're going to be, if you're going to get the sports award, you're basically an AFL and NRL player, um, a tennis player, and their, their definition of sport is very narrow. Same with the British, the uh, British Sports Personality of the Year. They don't factor in any minority sports really. Uh, it's got to be the mainstream sports to even get a look in, and most people just accept that. Mm. Oh no, no, it's just a just a bit of a surprise on this one. Okay, anyway, thanks, thanks, Mark. That's good. Cheers. No, no, great, Conrad. Lovely, and don't be a stranger to the program. It is twenty four minutes away from two o'clock. You are listening to SENZ. Telephone number is oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. Uh, we are taking your call. So that text came in. Uh, someone just texting and saying, "Hey, what uh, Bud Hayes." Winner of the 1964 Olympic 100 metres, also won a Super Bowl in either 1964 or 1965. So we're talking about athletes, extraordinary athletes that maybe we hadn't heard of. Um, Zoe is a very good athlete, but Snell was exceptional. Oh, look, I'm not even trying to compare Zoe Hobbs with Peter Snell. I mean, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, Snell was a, a freak. Would have loved to have seen a mile between Snell and the great Herb Elliott. Yeah, Herb Elliott actually gave up the sport about the age of 21, 22, was never beaten over 1,500 metres, um, won gold in 1960. I'd love to have seen Snell over 1,500 metre in the mile with the likes of the Walkers, the Coes, the Ovets, um, the Saida Wheaters, um, Hisham El Garouge and those runners on today's tracks and today's shoes. I still think Snell would have been right in the hunt, man. Just an absolute aerobic animal. Remarkable athlete. Um, but I'll tell you that I think on par with Peter Snell in this country when it comes to achievement, I think Daniel Oda needs to be in the discussion. Second biggest sport at the Olympic Games, won the two and the 400 freestyle. In an era when sport was truly global, every major country in the world has a swimming program in place, trained on his own pretty much in Dunedin, Two Blue Ribbon events. Also won a silver in the butterfly back in 92. And to put it in context, Ian Thorpe didn't manage to win the two and 400 double in 2000. He had to wait till 2004 to do it because the Dutchman Van den Hugenbahn beat him in the 200 in 2000. But we sort of maligned Daniel Loder a little bit because he was quite introverted and we couldn't understand and he didn't have the personality of perhaps a Sarah Ulmer. And I think we marginalised him for it. Swimming is a brutal sport. You're an elite athlete from the age of 10. And to win two gold medals at the Olympics in swimming, unbelievable. And to put it in context, we haven't won one since 1996. Just shows how difficult they are to win. 21 minutes away from two. Okay, 16 minutes away from 2 o'clock. Uh, Chris wanting to know, do the attendees have to pay to attend? I think they do for the Halberg Awards. It's a fundraiser ultimately for the Halberg Foundation, which is really primarily what its function is, is to help athletes with significant disability, um, significant impairment. So there's a lot of good with the Halbergs. Um, it just always becomes a contentious area. And I think in the past there has been sort of bias maybe showing it towards those sports which tend to get more media coverage than others and I'm not sure that historically there's always been a lot of due diligence done um, on um, comparing say some sports to others in terms of global reach, depth etc. Uh, we talked to Hayden Shearman after one o'clock uh, talking athletics and just doing a bit of a summary of things coming. The other uh, big event, 25th of January, it would have been 50 years since the great Dick Taylor won the 
Commonwealth Games 10,000 metres on the opening day of the track and field program at the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch 1974. Um, I encourage anybody, if you can find the full race, to watch it. World-class field, David Black, David Bedford. Uh, Bedford was the world record holder. Uh, David Black, I think, was the form athlete of the time. You had Richard Jumba. And it just set those games alive, really. Uh, just the 10 sports back in 1974 at the Commonwealth Games. Uh, Taylor throws his arms up and that iconic finish of his was just sheer elation. And he's one of the great characters, Dick Taylor, and one of the great after-dinner speakers. And he's often asked why he threw his arms up the way he did. And he simply said, because someone told me the bar was open. <laughs> and they named um, a road down there in Christchurch at QE2 Arena back in the day, Dick Taylor Drive. And he said, I don't know why you'd name a street after me and not put a pub on the corner. So a real sort of Kiwi bloke, I guess, back in the day. Trained up to 200 miles a week. Um, had represented New Zealand at the Commonwealth Games in 1970 in Edinburgh and hadn't really achieved and went to the Olympics in 1972 and hadn't really achieved and watched the likes of Dick Quacks and Rod Dixon do good things and, of course, John Walker and really needed to, I guess, um, you know, thank the selectors and thank New Zealand for the selection over the years and maybe having come up short. And he was coached by the great Arthur Lydiard. And he, I've interviewed him a lot. He said to me that his biggest weakness was belief. He didn't have enough belief in himself. And he'd had great form coming into the 1974 Commonwealth Games, had an exceptional build-up, had done a really good mile on grass two or three weeks before as a bit of a time trial. And he's on the outside track warming up just before three o'clock in the afternoon and all the athletes are called onto the main track and Arthur Lydia turns around to Dick and says, don't go out just yet, mate, do a few more stride outs. And he's like, but I'll miss my race. He goes, no, they won't start the race without you. Do as you're told. And then Arthur goes away and starts talking to a guy in a cap and glasses and um, this sort of throws Taylor a little bit. He's like, hang on a minute, I'm about to have the biggest race of my career and my coach is distracted and he's talking to somebody else. Anyway, the person that he was talking to comes up to Dick and Taylor realises pretty quickly that it's Peter Snell. And Peter walks up to him and says, I've heard a lot of things about you, Richard. I think you're going to do really well today. Arthur might not have told you this, but you actually broke a four minutes for the mile on grass a few weeks ago. I think you're going to do something special. And that was the genius of Lydia, that ability to just install that last 1%, that little bit of belief. He knew he'd done the work, he knew he was right, but he just needed to make sure he had him in the right place mentally. And they'd sat down on the Friday night and said, look, David Bedford, they're going to take this out at world record pace. It's going to be fast. But he said they'll underestimate just how hot it is. And they will come back. Stick on this pace and don't move from it. And if you watch that race at points, Bedford, Black, Jumba, these guys are 50 metres clear at one point. Taylor just sticks to his lap plan, 25 laps in 10,000 metres. And eventually David Bedford starts to crack and the gap starts to close up and a few laps to go, Taylor finds himself there with Richard Jumba and David Black. And one of the great stories that Dick Taylor tells is 
the crowd starts to get excited and they're chanting black, black, black. And he looks around and he goes, well, the guy in front of me is called black. The guy next to me is black and I'm wearing a black singlet. And so who are they chanting for? Just jokingly. And um, Lydia had said to him, you do not go until the last lap. And you watch the race. It's just just the most inspirational race you can watch. And if you know the backstory and the adversity and the training regimes that this guy went through to get where he got to, it's simply remarkable. And that year, uh, heading into 1975, he ended up being ranked the number one 10,000 metre runner in the world. Went overseas with Dixon and Walker and Quacks and ran against the world's best, including the great American hope at the time, Steve Prefontaine. And... um, by the end of 19, he was ranked number one in the world, and by the end of 1975, he was in a wheelchair with arthritis and would never run again. And that's the story of the great Dick Taylor. And I put that achievement up there with what Snell did and what Walker did. And it might only be at a Commonwealth Games level, but the Commonwealth Games back in 1974 were just a tier below the Olympic Games. There were no individual world championships. And um, to me, the greatest Commonwealth Games gold medal we have won, in my opinion. And there have been some very good Commonwealth Games gold medals over the years. But that, I think, is the greatest of all. Commonwealth records stood until 2002. 27 minutes and 45 seconds there or thereabouts. And of course, the day's coming. We would then see one of the great 1500 metre finals with Philbert Bay running from start to finish, breaking the world record. Walker going under the existing world record in second place. Rod Dixon finishing fourth. And Rod always says, it's funny, I ran the fifth fastest time in history and I finished fourth. Wonderful era. Coming up to the 50th anniversary of one of the great achievements. It is coming up to nine minutes away from two. You're listening to SENZ. Four minutes away from two o'clock, the Velvet Voice, Stephen McIver <laughs> on air between voice. two and six joins us in studio to preview what he's got coming up over the next four hours. Afternoon to you, Stephen. Hey, mate. How are you? Happy New Year, by the way. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, hey, I enjoyed, how... your, enjoyed your tennis, enjoyed the doubles. Did uh, you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, did the doubles and the singles final. Uh, yeah. It was nice to get back in the seat and feel like I was doing some live telly again. And uh, thought the women's, I thought the women's field was uh, much more enjoyable to watch than the men's field, I agree to with be you. fair. I agree with you. I think women's tennis generally is often a better product. They don't hit the ball quite as hard and therefore no. I think you tend to get better rallies anyway. Yeah, I, I think so. It's not I mean, so much to serve and... I, although I've been looking at the Australian Open and how hard the men hit the ball at the moment and what's going on there and it's yeah. like and the, the ability to change angles ridiculously quickly is beyond but yeah, no, so uh, interesting little twist uh, on sport to start the hour. I've got Chris Vidal who's the, the founder of a, a company called Athlete Sports Management along with the Big Easy, Ernie Ells. The great it's, man. It's, it's about uh, scholarship recruiting, right? They've well, formed yeah. a partnership with a good friend of mine, Amrit Rai from Platform Sports Management. He's coming into the country to have a look around. They've been to New Zealand before and they've been out looking at golfers, uh, basketball players. Water polo? Water polo, the whole nine yards. Uh, well, platform, Water polo, very big for the women. Uh, well, Amrit, Amrit ran a... Ran a water polo program just before Christmas and had three Ivy League coaches out having a lot. Yeah. So it's huge because I know friends of mine, a friend of mine, has his two daughters have got had scholarships to Ivy League universities on the back of their ability to play water polo. Kiwis born in yeah. Australia. So Chris and Amrit, we're going to have a yarn for about an hour, half an hour or so. John Brace was going to talk about the game last night in Seddon Park, you know, the T20, 2-0 two, two up against... 
up against uh, the Pakistanis ahead of the South African test. Uh, Chris Millis is going to talk about the Phoenix. The Phoenix were. I just watched the, all the goals. I'll tell you what. The, what did he? What was the, sorry, what was the final four score? Four three. The Phoenix go to stay at the top of the table. I saw Costas Barbarisa scored. It, bring got it up got to a, one. Got, got a double. Uh, but the cracking at the Perth goals, mate. They were world class goals. We're going to try and talk some Aussie Open. We're going to talk the NFL because I'm a bit cranky right now. <laughs> Van Dallas fact, Cowboys. My, my Cowboys have gone down. Bad, slow start, big start from Green Bay, 48-32. I'll say this, no different than the NRL, you know, favourites at the TAB are the 49ers, but it'll be one of these you want, teams you want, now. Bro, you want Brock Purdy, you want Mr. Irrelevant. Be, it'll, it'll be one of these teams, though, that will go on that run that will win this. Green Bar didn't pick him, but Jordan Lovett at quarterback is pretty strong, So, and there's a lot of strong talk We're in about a statistic, it. what, one Four playoff games in 26 yeah. years they've won. Dallas have won four out of 20 in 27 years. And Aaron Gate, after five, won, won the uh, Wellington Cycling the, Classic. The, yeah, but the Tour of Wellington. Yeah. That's what they call it. Yeah. And I've spoken to him before. He's, he is a good cat. So we talked to him about Great that. Athlete. And what the program looks like for Olympic year. Uh, and why does he keep doing it? Why does he keep doing it? So that's uh, that's two to six today on the big show, baby. There you go. Stephen McIver with you between two and six. Of course, you can text Stephen here on the Temper Bedpost text machine, double eight double three. And of course, there might be some opportunity this hour over the next four hours too to take some talk on 0800 150811. That is me. I am done and dusted. Special thanks to Robbie. Scored 50 on the weekend. Plays in a band. Hate overachievers, Robbie. The big show coming up next between two and six.